3: Good Monday morning, everyone, and welcome to Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN with Michelle Smallman. I'm Randy Carriker. It is great to have you with us as we get another week rolling here on 101 ESPN at 7:01. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. On this Monday morning, after the Dodgers moved within a game of their first World Championship since 1988 with a 4-2 win over the Tampa Bay Rays, Michelle. Good morning.
4: Good morning, Randy. How are you?
3: Everything's great great and what a great weekend of baseball i'll tell you what after the first three games of this series which were all one-sided the last two games have been compelling and fun and interesting and what baseball needs
4: this postseason in general has been compelling and interesting and fun and so has the world series saturday night was one of the best games i've ever seen it was so fun that ending was so wild and i just look at last night's game and i think wow I know that the Dodgers are a tough team, and Tampa Bay gave what they had, but what a missed opportunity to capture that momentum. Because I went into the game last night thinking, if you're the Dodgers, how does that not creep into your head mentally? To lose a game in that manner, that's got to creep in there. And so I just really was hoping that the Rays would be able to capitalize on that momentum from Saturday night.
3: And I thought that the Rays did everything they could to try to capture that momentum. How often, especially at a World Series game, but how often in Major League Baseball does a guy try to steal home? home. And down 3-2 with Kiermaier at the plate. Manuel Margo tries in the fourth inning to steal home. I-, I thought that Kevin Cash and his group did everything they could. Mm-hmm. But they just they couldn't keep the momentum. A great play by Ker- Clayton Kershaw. A great job of getting the ball home. A great tag by uh, the catcher Austin uh, Barnes. And The Dodgers are simply the best team. That's the the bottom line here is that in all of baseball, the Dodgers are the best team and they do the little things right.
4: So best team, they've been in that conversation for a long time. Do you think that they're going to capture it? Do you think this is the season they get it done? I do. I do too.
3: With two opportunities to pull this off, I would be very surprised if the Dodgers didn't win either tomorrow night or Wednesday. And they, they've been through all the pressure situations. They've been through all the negativity. There really isn't a scenario where they haven't seen the adversity that they'll see. Whether it is tomorrow night or Wednesday, they've been through it all. And for Tampa, this is all new.
4: They've also gotten through the dreaded Will Clayton Kershaw blow it up in Game 5 scenario.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Kershaw last night, 5-2. and He allows two runs on five hits. Struck out six and walked two and i'll tell you what during this postseason he's been fantastic and he likes the idea of being successful
5: you know anytime you can have success in the postseason it just means so much that's what you work for that's what you play for this month and you know I, i know what the other end of that feels like too so i'll definitely take it when i can get it
3: that's the thing and not only does he know what it feels like but we all expect it from him at this point
4: We do, but he's been great this postseason, his World Series ERA 2.31, the entire playoffs 2.93. He's looked Mm -hmm. really sharp, but I got to tell you, Randy... I think if the Dodgers somehow find a way to lose this, this postseason performance for him is going to get lost in the narrative, oh, yeah. and that's what I think stinks for him. Is even heading into this World Series, he's had his moments where he's been sharp in the in the postseason. It's not as if every single time he blows up, but because he is the face of this Dodgers team, or one of the faces of the, you could argue that he's the face of this yeah, Dodgers I team, right? I think he is. I too. think
3: Mookie probably has changed that, but certainly until this year, he has. Bellinger
4: been. is in that conversation too. Think about Bellinger and NBA. MVP guy, and I wouldn't even put him in the same ca- category see, as Clayton Kershaw. That's the thing.
3: Do you know Bellinger's face? How can you be a face for baseball if people don't know his face?
4: I know his face. Do you know his face?
3: Uh, if, if he were walking down Olive and I was walking down the other <laughs> way, I wouldn't say, "Hey, that's Cody Bellinger."
4: You wouldn't?
3: No, I, I would say that for Mookie Betts or Clayton Kershaw. I think Bellinger just looks like everybody—not everybody, but he looks like a lot of people.
4: Also, Kershaw has all the commercials. you, right, know, you, yeah. see, you see him in the media more. I think, but. For Kershaw, even though he's had his spots where he's been good in the postseason, it's the moments that he blows up that everybody remembers because the Dodgers still haven't been able to get it done. If he, they would have gone on in one of those series to win, then it becomes a footnote. Oh, yeah, remember when Clayton Kershaw mm-hmm. had that bad performance out with the Dodgers won? Now it's, okay, I've done my job. Can you guys help yeah. further this narr- Or you know, further eradicate this narrative?
3: And even though he came out in the sixth inning Chris Singleton, MLB analyst for ESPN, said that the Dodgers got exactly what they needed.
5: We're not going to see the Clayton Kershaw that was the Cy Young Award winner, the MVP. Those days are, are gone. So... To expect to see anything close to that in the postseason where you're facing the toughest hitters, it's not going to be there. But again, he's that old, salty veteran that you can depend on. And I know at times it hasn't been any kind of mirror like it is during the regular season. But he had a great first start of this series, got the Dodgers into the win column, and he gave them a very quality start tonight, which after last night, all the arms that Dave Roberts had to use, the fact that he only had to have a couple of arms out of the bullpen tonight, I mean, that's because of Clayton Kershaw, didn't hand the ball off until after the 6th.
3: So, Michelle, here's a headline for a story on ESPN.com. And I believe this question is way overused on ESPN TV, but (laughs) I do think it's an interesting one. And it was World Series 2020, Clayton Kershaw repairs his playoff legacy with Game 5 win. When you have had the postseason legacy that Clayton Kershaw has, when he came to the podium last year after allowing those back-to-back home runs to Kendrick and Soto and said, Hey, all those people that talk about me in the playoffs, they're right. So when you've had that postseason legacy, when your career ERA is 2.43 during the regular season, 4.43 during the playoffs, does this completely erase all the other stuff leading up to this year? I don't think so. I don't either.
4: And um, again, unfortunately, I think if the Dodgers lose, people will not remember this, which is unfair to him. It is unfair because he did everything that he could do. He took control of his destiny as far as this world series is concerned as bill belichick would say Randy, he did his job but i think it's unfair but it is true if the dodgers find a way to blow this that narrative will still exist they could go into the world series again next season and people would still question can clayton kershaw mm-hmm. get it done i don't know he has had those moments even even uh, you know forgetting 2020 it's just what people do and that's unfair to him and now
3: is. if he wants Not if he wants, but if the narrative is going to change, if if our long-lasting memory of Kershaw is going to change, it can if he comes in to Game 7 like Randy Johnson did in 2001 or like Madison Bumgarner did in 2016 or 2014. And if he relieves in a brilliant way in Game 7, then that becomes an historic performance that everybody remembers. If they win. If they win. But he he has to, I think he can change the narrative. He can change the way people feel about his postseason performances because people will say, they they can point to that one and say, okay, at the most important time, he came in and gave his team everything they needed. That's what I remember about Madison Bumgarner is that World Series win against the, the Royals. And for all of the great things Randy Johnson did, I remember him coming in and closing out the World Series before the the win that was delivered by Luis Gonzalez in 2001 against the Yankees. Those guys coming back on one or two days rest and pitching out of the bullpen and pitching great.
4: You know what I remember from Madison Bumgarner is Mason Saunders.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mason Saunders was great.
4: How quickly we forget Mason Saunders, his fake name that he used in rodeo shows.
3: A rodeo hero. <laughs> rodeo hero. Absolutely. Hey, we don't want to gloss over a great weekend of college football. The Big Ten came back, and it was just fun, to. even though the Illini didn't play great. They're playing against a really good program in Wisconsin. It was fun to see them on Friday night. And uh, the first two games, of Michelle, that Mizzou played, Alabama and Tennessee, I said, oh, they're going to be boring and not fun. <laughs> this m- Mizzou might have a really good coach here in Eli Drinkwitz.
4: They've got it. You just sometimes ready as Russ Wilson says, let it cook. You just got yeah. to let it cook. And you slay the LSU dragon, even though it's, it's still a good LSU team that typically Mizzou would not beat. It's
3: a bunch of four and five star players exactly. still.
4: Exactly. Not, not exactly the LSU team that they would have hoped it would be but that is still a game that Mizzou typically loses. So you beat the defending national champions in LSU and then you slay the dragon in Kentucky that has really, really been a thorn in your side for five the past five seasons. It's huge for Coach Drink and Mizzou. And not only that, he in a short period of time has become the face of this program yep. and has given people a reason to galvanize around it and be excited to watch them on the weekends you know what i
3: really was impressed by is he gets hired as an offensive guru of the the star wars offense and putting up all of these unbelievable numbers that he did at app state and before that at nc state they run the ball 37 times by the way larry roundtree ran the ball 37 times kentucky ran 36 plays And they played defense. They they played old school football to beat Kentucky. So their ability to adjust and kind of be a chameleon and show themselves to be a different team and win in a different way, I thought was really impressive.
4: Also, he's doing all of this during a season in which there was a pandemic Mm -hmm. when he didn't get the normal... preseason that he would have wanted with his team he's having to dodge all these protocols deal with potential positive tests kids having to socially all of these things that he's had to deal with and he's still being able to put this together I'm really impressed with him. And so
3: many coaches won't admit that the rest of the world exists and they say oh, I'm totally focused on football I only focus on what I'm what we're doing this week who, who we're playing he ends his press conference by saying don't ask me tough questions <laughs> M I Z Z O U. That's Michelle, I'm Randy And this is Carriker and Smallman Next up, there was a report this weekend About what the Cardinals saw at their prospect camp But with the Cardinals' recent history Should we trust the prospects that are coming along? That's next on 101 ESPN We are right back to the Carriker
2: and Smallman Podcast On 101 ESPN
3: Michelle, there's a good piece up at Cardinals.com by Mike Rosenbaum, and it's actually been up for a week or so, about the Cardinals' prospect camp and what the Cardinals' impressions were of the people that went to that camp. And there are glowing reports for Nolan Gorman and Matthew Libertor, and they got an opportunity to see Jordan Walker, their first-round draft pick from this year. And when you look at the Cardinals' top prospects, their top 30 prospects— There are a half a dozen or so guys that have ETAs of 2022, including Gorman, the catcher Yvonne Herrera, Matthew Libertor, Malcolm Nunez, Zach Thompson, all of those guys. And I know the Cardinals are excited about them, and I'm excited about them because I, I am excited about the idea and the prospect of young athletic players mm-hmm. replacing people like Carpenter and Fowler down the line, especially those two. But ultimately, it's going to happen that some of those guys are going to be the replacements for Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright, too, more likely in 2022 than 2021. My question to lead off is this. When you look at what has happened with Harrison Bader and Tyler O'Neill and Lane Thomas, uh, and even Carson Kelly went the way he performed here, do you have a good feeling about Cardinal prospects? I don't. I I don't have a good feeling about those people becoming stars. Maybe I have PTSD from the guys who were supposed to become stars that didn't. So I'm concerned that the players that the Cardinals are, not the Cardinals, even MLB, the, the people that evaluate prospects, I'm concerned about those guys not becoming really good major leaguers.
4: It's You have to put your faith and hope in prospects, right? That's exactly what they are. You, you hope that they're going to turn into something. And maybe your PTSD, Randy, lies in the fact that the guys who we once potentially touted that the Cardinals gave up on, that's when they go yep. blossom elsewhere. So you're wondering, hey, did they hang on to the right guys? If they're touting these players... Should we believe them? Should we believe them? I guess is the question, right?
1: Yep.
3: And, and obviously, the topic du jour is a Rosarena, right? Of course. But clearly, always. they misevaluated Randy a Rosarena. Well, if they did misevaluate him, and so they don't have him, but they do have O'Neill and uh, Thomas, and hopefully, Dylan Carlson winds up being a great player. But they have three third basemen, they have Gorman. They have Malcolm Nunez and they have Alejandro Montero. I can't be confident that they're going to pick the right one to play at the major league level because and of what the, the choices that they've made in the past.
4: And isn't that such a bummer yeah. <laughs> to think that you you don't have that confidence yeah. in the team? Now, the name that always pops up there is Nolan Gorman. And in reading about him, one of the things that popped out to me that makes me feel confident and Nolan Gorman and his hopeful uh, what we hope to be success in the future is that he's been working a lot with Jose Okendo, yeah. and to me, that's always a great step in your development if you're working with the secret weapon because we know how okay Jose Okendo is and what he can do with players and helping them along. But then, as I'm reading this article that you sent along from MLB.com, here's a sentence that sentence that makes you go, "Hmm." Gorman receives glowing reviews from Cardinals officials for his progress on both sides of the ball this summer. And to your point, I think okay. From, from internally, if he's receiving glowing reviews, most people would think, oh, that's great. But then I think, are they evaluating him correctly? Yeah. What are they looking at? You know, it's just, it's questions that you need to ask yourself. But I think when you look at the total body of work with the Cardinals and the way they've been able to identify young players, develop them, and have them uh, eventually ascend to the club, right now they're certainly in a rut. Of course they are in a rut. But when I look at the total body of work with what's happened under John Moselik, they have been able to identify some pretty good young players. Mm-hmm and get them to the major league level so at the end of the day even though we're watching a lot of these guys succeed elsewhere I still do have faith in the Cardinals to identify this this talent and hopefully they keep the right players as they continue down this road
3: and to be fair I do feel good about their ability to evaluate pitchers right. when you look at what Flaherty has done when you look at what Dakota Hudson did and People didn't think that he could do it. Even the the guys like Oviedo, who came up and pitched for the first time above A-ball this year, and uh, some of the other young pitchers that the Cardinals have given opportunities to. I feel better about a guy like Matthew Libertor. and. Gary LaRock, the Cardinals director of development, told uh, Mike Rosenbaum that Matt really took advantage of the instructional time and spent a lot of time with the analytics staff. He applied it, worked at it, and just had a very positive two plus months of instruction. He said, our staff did a great job with his development and we're very pleased with the progress he made. Uh, because of what the Rays felt about him, because of the way that he's perceived by MLB Pipeline and Baseball America, and... Because of the way the Cardinals have developed pitchers, I feel better about he and Zach Thompson than I do about the position players. And until the Cardinals get young position players, until they get one that becomes a star, a centerpiece player like Reyna has been during this postseason, I'm going to have to wait to see it to believe it.
4: Like we hope Dylan Carlson can become.
3: Yes. Yeah. If Carlson becomes that guy, then I feel a whole lot better about the situation.
4: And this is an unfair conversation for me to even bring up. But I think back to Oscar Tavares and I think about the ripple effects that that has had within the Cardinals organization, his unfortunate passing. But I also wonder then they really touted him to be the guy. And we'll never know if he would have developed into that guy. But I think that we have based so much of how we view that that position within the Cardinals organization as, well, it could have been Oscar Tavares. Yeah. That was supposed to be the guy after Albert Pujols. But we don't know that he would have no. developed into that guy. But it's just something that I think a lot of Cardinals fans harken back to, like, well, they were supposed to have Tavares be that guy.
3: And I remember during that 14 season in the fast lane, I referred to him as a no-tool player. He He, he didn't run well. He didn't field well. He didn't throw well. He didn't hit, and he didn't hit for power. And the Cardinals thought he would have been a star. This would have been his sixth year. But you're right. We have no idea what he would have become. And at this stage, he would have been 28, probably headed to free free agency. The Cardinals had better have had an alternate plan in place by now. I think there has been a significant amount of time where the Cardinals could have fairly gotten a pass. Because like I've said... For 2015, 16, 17, 18, just look at the contract that they gave out to Alan Craig. They expected that Tavares was going to be their number three hitter and Alan Craig was going to be their number four hitter. One guy dies, one guy messes up his foot. Well, now you have to replace Alan Craig, and you've done that with Paul Goldschmidt, some other guys before him. And now you're at that point... You, you have to find that outfielder, but you have to find a catcher, too. And one of the guys that the Cardinals had at the prospect camp was Herrera, who's only 20 years old. Yachty was 20 when he came up. And Rosenbaum says he's quietly developing into the, one of the better catching prospects after slashing 284-374-405 between Peoria and Palm Beach during the 2019 regular season and then standing out as a 19-year-old against older competition in the Arizona Fall League. So hopefully... If it doesn't wind up being Andrew Kisner, it winds up being Ivan Herrera and wouldn't that be fitting if you go from Matheny to Yachty to another 20-year-old mm-hmm. who winds up being a, a gold glover?
4: And I loved the way they described his development. Um, I loved that they talked about his work ethic and the way that he just grinds and he's really dedicated to this because that's something that Yadi or mm-hmm. Molina has. And I loved this line from Gary LaRock about how the pitchers love throwing to him and how his defense continues to improve. And I, and I do wonder if the Cardinals are considering this, if they're looking at Herrera and saying, okay we haven't really gotten enough time to let Kisner potentially bloom and develop at the major league level. This is... um something of value to us that we could potentially use in, in some sort of a deal, because if they want to bring Yadi or Molina back, maybe they're looking at it as, Hey, Yadi can be the bridge to Herrera instead of, okay, what is Andrew Kisner going to be? Maybe they're viewing it as, okay, what can we get for Andrew Kisner? We can bring Yadi back. He can hopefully be a mentor to Herrera. Hopefully there's fans back and they can give Yadi the appreciation that he deserved down the stretch. But, I just The more I think about the Yachty situation, I know it's going to be difficult for them financially. Mm. And he might have already made up his mind. Who knows? Maybe he already once has decided whatever they're going to offer me, I want to try, try my hand elsewhere. But I do think if Herrera is going to be the guy, that bringing Yachty back could be a, a good move for them.
3: And I, it, well, if I were asked to do the Goldschmidt trade again today, I would. Because Carson Kelly was never going to get an opportunity here. Right. But again, do we trust the Cardinals to make the right choice between Herrera and Kisner? based on recent history. I do not. And that's the that's why we're having this conversation, because they've got a kid, Malcolm Nunez, is another third-base prospect, 19 years old, won the Dominican League Triple Crown. We know that you can produce at the minor league level for the Cardinals, and they'll still move you. So my concern is, do they have the right sets of eyes in place? And by the way, uh, this is completely analytically inclined now. The Cardinals have... They they've moved more away from scouting and utilizing people that have been there and having eyes on players to almost exclusively using things like Soto and analytics and video and, and they've almost completely gotten away from the the eyes on the players, which is kind of from my perspective. I know that's where baseball is headed, but it's kind of disturbing. My preference would be to have. the the people that have been involved in baseball before and especially one at a high level telling me and and telling those players how to win?
4: I know that this would never go down this way because Yadier Molina is the ultimate competitor. He does not want to concede one second of playing time. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't you love to go to Yadier and say, hey, We want you to evaluate these two guys. We want you to tell us who you think has more raw talent and and the skill set to be the next you, because I think he could identify it, but you can't ask a guy to do that. But wouldn't you you like to get him in a private moment and be like, hey, which one would you like? And then see which one the Cardinals said
3: and and if their
4: answers matched
3: up. And Michelle, I completely understand the financial difficulties of dealing with a pandemic, and I don't know how this is going to work out in the future, but it is my understanding that the Cardinals have fired Chris Carpenter, Jim Edmonds, Ryan Ludwig, Braden Looper, Jason Isringhausen, and those guys are not going to be helping, the at least in the near term, with lack of money coming in because of the pandemic. Uh, those guys have been let go by the Cardinals to, to help them and help their younger players along.
4: And that's a shame.
3: That is. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Next up, it was week seven in the NFL. We've got four downs coming your way on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101
2: ESPN. <laughs>
3: Time for four down. Scott Manziera, who did you say was the last unbeaten team in the <laughs> NFL? That was the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh, okay.
4: Oh, I think somebody on this show may have called
3: that. Yeah, I think like after week three, somebody oh, may have called that.
4: That's right. It, who was it? That would have been me. Oh, okay. So since you called it, Randy, you get the honors. You can go first here.
3: Thank you. Michelle, uh, we did first down, right? First down. <laughs> there, there, we go. Go. there we go. There it Good. is. Hey, they might be the best team, too. And it's no surprise. It continues a half-century of excellence. How about this, Michelle? Since Chuck Knoll got them turned around in 1971, his third year at the helm of the Steelers, the Steelers in 49 years have had seven losing seasons 85 86 88 91 98 99 and 03 was the Steelers last losing season they've won six Super Bowls seven losing seasons six Super Bowls they've been to eight Super Bowls in that time and they've been to 16 of the 49 AFC championship games that's a third of the time that they're going to their conference championship game that's incredible it's amazing so they've had three head coaches in the last 51 years, Noel, Bill Cowher, and Mike Tomlin, who has never had a losing season in 14 years at the helm of the Steelers.
4: Do you think the Patriots' dominance and the dominance of Bill Belichick has somehow made Mike Tomlin underrated? I do. Because don't you think if, if Belichick and Brady didn't have the run they had that we would have been talking way more about Mike Tomlin than we have been?
3: There's no doubt about it. And when you look at the fact that The Steelers have had the Ravens in their division. Well, let let me put this in perspective for you. Since Bill Belichick took over in New England in 2000, in the AFC East, other teams than the Patriots have played in 17 playoff games and won six of them. And by the way, they're all by the Jets. (laughs) In that same time, 17 playoff games for AFC East teams other than the Patriots. In that exact same time, AFC North teams, other than the Steelers, have been in 37 playoff games and won 25 of them, including the Ravens' two Super Bowls. Wow. So the division opposition has been greater as well. So the point here, Steelers, all due respect to what the Patriots and Tom Brady did, but the Steelers are the best organization in the NFL.
4: So are they the St. Louis Cardinals of the NFL?
3: Uh, <laughs> I put that one on the d- Kind of, yeah. Hey. Don't have many managers or coaches.
4: Might be down on them now, but you can't argue the body of work.
3: No. And here's the other thing, Michelle. Just think about this. They lose Le'Veon Bell, they lose Antonio Brown, uh, they lose offensive linemen right and left. They lost Devin Bush, their play calling linebacker, they lose James Ferrier, they lose Ryan Shazier. They're always losing guys and always replacing them.
4: Ben Roethlisberger is threatening to retire every year. Yep. you never know if he's that's, coming back. That's
3: when it might go backwards. We'll see. Second down.
4: Okay, Randy, for second down, I've got to talk about that Falcons-Lions game. We know it's been a rough season for Atlanta. The losses are piling up. up. They're firing their coach, their GM. They're talk of blowing up the team, moving on for Matt Ryan, even Julio Jones. They also became the first team in the last 20 seasons to blow multiple leads of 15 points or more in the fourth quarter. But on Sunday, they thought, you know what? This day might be a rare bright spot for us in this dark hell of a season. They were on the brink of their second win. They were down two points late in the fourth quarter. They were in the red zone with under two minutes left. All they had to do was run down the clock and kick a short field goal for the win. So guess what didn't happen? Any of that. Here's what did happen. Todd Gurley gets the ball. He breaks through. He attempts to fall down on the one-yard line, but he can't stop Randy. He's got that Randy Rosa Arena daniel Jones forward momentum going on, and he just <laughs> barely crosses the goal line. That's right. He scores on accident. He gives the Lions and Matthew Stafford the ball back. Huge mistake. Stafford, boom, eight play, 75-yard drive. Boom, 11-yard touchdown. Boom, extra points. Boom, Lions win. Falcons lose the game. Only the Falcons could lose a game like that because they scored a touchdown. I feel so badly for all the Falcons fans out there. Apologies to our friend Anthony Stalter. The Falcons now fall to 1-6 and on the season. But is that not the most Atlanta Falcons way to lose that game?
3: So you're trying to not score and you accidentally do.
4: Accidentally.
3: It's unbelievable. And by the way, the Lions were trying to let... Gurley score because they knew that the Atlanta defense is so bad <laughs> that they would have an opportunity to win that game. And then the Lions, uh, they get a replay to help them stop the clock so that Stafford can throw the last play touchdown. Then Danny Amendola, in a tie game, takes an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty that turns the extra point into a 48-yard extra point, And they still hit it. Detroit does to win the game.
4: That's going to be one of the images for me, of this season, is the Lions' defense signaling touchdown and celebration as Todd Gurley <laughs> lays on the ground right on the edge of the goal line.
3: Unbelievable! Yeah, that's that's when you know things are going bad, man. Uh, how, how often did the Rams try to score touchdowns when they were here during <laughs> that fifteen and sixty-five? But never, never did they have a situation where they were trying to score a touchdown and couldn't. Unreal. Unreal. Or not trying to not score a touchdown and did. <laughs> Third down. All right, Michelle, on the other end of the spectrum from the Steelers. How about this? Uh, st- I mentioned where the Steelers started in 1971 and how great they've been. From 1970 through 1995, either the Cowboys or the Redskins represented the NFC in half of the Super Bowls. 13 of 26. They won eight of them. Every single time those division rival played, r- rivals played against each other, Their game was on national tv all the time whether it was a thanksgiving game or a monday night or a late sunday every time cowboys redskins played it was a natural rivalry and a national tv game well since the excellence of jimmy johnson wore off in dallas and dan snyder bought the redskins in 1999 there have been 26 more super bowls and the cowboys and redskins have played in none of them in zero and yesterday was the pinnacle of their ineptitude A 25-3 Washington football team win. They aren't the Redskins anymore. And at the end of the game, the quarterbacks were Kyle Allen for Washington and Ben DiDucci, the rookie from James Madison for Dallas. Both teams have recycled first-year coaches. Both are languishing at the bottom of the worst division in football, and both have ruined what was at one time the best rivalry in the NFL. Brutal. It's awful. Man, was that a bad game, too. And the Cowboys... Are horrific. Horrific. They're they're just
4: a bad team. Yeah. You can't blame all that on Dak Prescott not being there. They're just a bad team.
3: Yeah. The defense is bad. Yesterday Andy Dalton gets hurt and nobody does boo, nobody does anything. It was it was kind of like uh wakey wakey Dalton and nobody even stepped up to do anything to the Washington football team perpetrators. Can
4: you imagine him seeing his teammates after the game? Like, hey guys, thanks for nothing.
3: Fortunately, he didn't remember it. He's in concussion protocol now. Sure. <laughs> Fourth down.
4: Okay. Well, we've got to finish off this segment with an update on the Brady Belichick divorce. And Randy, as of right now, it seems like Tom Brady got the house, the cars, the vacation home, and the wedding china in this one. Okay. <laughs> so let's go, let's go to the the bad and the ugly before we go to the good. Pat's 49ers in the first half. Cam Newton completed four of eight passes for 30 yards, two interceptions. But he wasn't done. He actually get ended up getting another interception a third one. In the second half, he gets benched. The Patriots lose at home to the 49ers, 33-6. to They now have a three-game losing streak. Some are saying this is the worst home loss for Bill Belichick as coach of the Patriots. And again, just like the Cowboys, this looks like it might just be a bad team. Now, what happened on the other side of this divorce? Let's talk about Tom Brady and the Bucks. Well, Brady looked great in a 45-20 win over the Raiders. And here's some Tom Brady numbers for you, Randy. A 43-year-old, he had 369 yards, four passing touchdowns, and one rushing touchdown the Bucks are five and two they might be the best team in the NFC they're certainly in that conversation the Patriots are two and four there's still some season left to play but as of right now advantage Tom Brady
3: yeah I'll say maybe <laughs> Belichick was a product of Brady granted they had a lot of defensive opt-outs and their defenses and what it was but he's supposed to be able to evaluate players and cam newton hasn't done it for him jared stidham hasn't done it for him and they've got real issues there and in texting with people around the nfl last night green bay and arizona uh, staff members those two teams both think that tampa bay is the best team in the nfc right now now whether it'll be that way in at christmas time we don't know Mm -hmm. but boy they look great
4: yes they do cam newton randy two touchdown passes seven interceptions Yikes. That's Seamus Winston like.
3: <laughs> it sure is. Uh, they could have signed him too. Uh, that is Four Downs on 101 ESPN. Next up, get your text into the Air Comfort Service. Text line 65780. We've got a game of Take It or Leave It coming your way on 101 ESPN.
2: We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs>
3: got take it or leave it coming up send in your text to the air comfort service text line 65780 also at the bottom of the eight o'clock hour we will have the fight as we do every morning and if you'd like to participate you have your opportunity just text your name and the word fight to 65780 and when you do that scott manziara will pick at random somebody to fight against me that's coming up at 8 30 get your text in 65780 to the air comfort service text line ready for tioli i am ready All right, Michelle, yesterday, as you talked about, the Cleveland Browns beat the Cincinnati Bengals. And after the Bengals blew the lead, defensive end Carlos Dunlop went to social media, he went to the gram, and he put his home on the market immediately, immediately. It is furnished, and uh, basically he said, hey, I got to get out of (laughs) here. Take it or leave it, regardless of what the Browns record is, it'll take some time before the embarrassment of losing to the Browns passes by
4: oh you've got to take that
3: yeah they're five and two but carlos dunlop of the bengals says man losing to the browns he's getting out of dodge by putting his house on the market
4: you know it's bad if you immediately throw your place up on zillow
3: yeah no doubt and by the way joe mixon uh, the running back for the bengals uh responded to dunlop uh, dunlap and said let me get that crib so <laughs> uh, joe mixon wants the house
4: I'd be like, yeah, let's not get realtors involved. We, you know, we can save the money. Absolutely. (laughs) Cash deal. Yeah. Easy transaction. (laughs) Okay, Randy, I never under, I know social media is a, is a toxic place, Mm -hmm. but one of the things on social media that I've never understood is the hate for Joe Buck, but it made me think people hate him because each fan base thinks he's against them. So he must be calling it straight if both teams think – or both the fan bases of both teams thinks that he's leaning one way or the other, Mm -hmm. right? But take it or leave it, that call that he had on Saturday night could not have been better.
3: I'll take that. That was perfect.
4: It was perfect. It was so good. I think Joe Buck's outstanding, and I don't understand why people don't like him. But I don't know how you could listen to that call and the way that that play developed and not tip your cap to Joe Buck because that was a wild, wild, wild ending, and he – described it perfectly, let it breathe perfectly. Mm-hmm. He just did an outstanding job.
3: Yeah, he's he doesn't make mistakes. He's as good as it gets. And I think some people just, uh, like you said, they don't understand that he's doing a national broadcast. And not everything can be positive about your team because not everything is positive about your team. Right. Right. 65780, oh, Scotty, what do you got? And by the way, Joe will be with us at 9.30 tomorrow morning here on uh, Carrick and Smallman on 101 ESPN. So we are gonna we're gonna say nice things about him.
4: Boy, he deserves that. Well, yeah, he, he deserves does.
3: them. And he's one of our best friends. So a good guy.
0: 65780 oh, is the Air Comfort Service Text Line 4. Take it or leave it. From the 618, Mizzou will win at least five games. Take it or leave it.
3: All right. I am going to I think this one's gonna come down to the Mississippi State game, Michelle and they're 1 and 3 and Mike Leach is not having a great first year at Mississippi State. Now, remember the two Tigers victories have been at home. Uh they've lost at Tennessee, but I could see them they're at 2 and 2. I could see them losing to Florida mm-hmm. and Georgia. That's right. 2 and 4. I could see them winning at South Carolina. 3 and 4. I can see them beating Arkansas at home. 4 and 4. Mississippi State 5-4, and four, Vanderbilt 6-4. and four. I, I'm going to go with the over here. You take it? Yeah.
4: And it's not just because you're riding high off these past two weeks? Oh, it totally
3: is. <laughs> but I, I can see them winning on the road at South Carolina because that's kind of their it, meh program.
4: But that's been a tricky game sometimes for Mizzou. It,
3: it always seems to be the home team that wins. But I think that's because you had two meh coaches in Muschamp and Odom. I think now you have the coach to beat Will Muschamp on the road. And then it's going to come down to being able to slow down Mississippi State. And like Drink said the other day, hey, the other team can't score if they don't have the ball. Good point. So I think that's what's going to happen. I think Mizzou will probably play that game against Mississippi State.
4: I'm riding high off, off these back-to-back wins, too. I'm going to take it. But I think I think that... The way that Coach Drink has this team rolling, they have confidence in themselves now. And it seems like a lot of their players are getting better week to week. Yeah. So hopefully, by the time they get to that South Carolina or Mississippi State game, they're even that much better and more advanced.
0: Get your text into the Air Comfort Service text line for take it or leave it, 65780. This one from the 636. Take it or leave it. The Cardinals are more likely to have a losing season next year than to win the
3: World Series. I'll take that. Yeah, that's. <laughs> That just I'm gonna makes leave
4: sense. it. I'm gonna leave it. I still think that they're gonna contend for the division, and that they could be a playoff team.
3: But it's either or. So right. But
4: all you gotta do is get in.
3: But there'll be, yeah. That's right. I, I like the positivity.
4: I'm not saying I think they're going to win the World Series, but I think it, if I'm looking at it. If I'm taking my emotions out of it right now, they're not as bad as I think we want to make them out to be.
3: They aren't. I just think that it's more likely that bad things can happen, that injuries can occur and you can finish 80 and 82 if you play 162 games. I just think that's a greater likelihood than being the one team that's standing at the end.
4: I think their defense is still going to be solid, and I look at all of the pitching that they're going to get back and think hopefully the offense could take a little bit of a step in the right direction. But That's even if crazy. even if the offense stays the way that it is, they still are a team that contends for the division and gets yep. into the playoffs on their pitching on the backs of their pitching and their defense. So I think they're more likely to still be walking that line of, OK, are we going to creep into the playoffs at the end than be a, a losing team?
0: I like that positivity from the three one four. Take it or leave it after Dax injury and Elliott playing so poorly. This proves that quarterbacks make great running backs.
3: Hmm. I think I'm going to have to. Uh, I think I'm going to have to leave that. I
4: think so too. Uh,
3: Steven Jackson did a pretty good job over the years, without really having great quarterbacking. Uh, Walter Payton had a lot of great years without great quarterbacking, so I, I don't think you have to be have a quarterback to have a, a great running back.
4: Poor Steven Jackson, though.
3: Could have been a hall of famer if he goes to the right spot. By the way, the two spots for him were either going to be. St. Louis or Cincinnati, so it just wasn't going to happen for Stephen. <laughs>
4: it was just not in the stars for him. No. Um, I still follow old SJ39 on the socials, Randy. And I don't know, maybe a week or two ago, he had always promised his mom that he would go back and finish his degree at college. And he filmed it. He had gone back and gotten his degree from Oregon State and he surprised her. Awesome. Yeah. And she was so proud of him and it was really cool. So I, I just wanted to give Steven Jackson a shout out for going back and, and getting it done. He promised her he would do it and it, it doesn't matter how long it takes. He He went and he fulfilled that promise. Good for him. Yeah, I know. And
3: he still spends time here in St. Louis, has Mm -hmm. family here in St. Louis. So that's pretty cool. And uh, when you see him around, give him a shout out and congratulations.
4: He's the low-key most interesting guy that was on that Rams team.
3: Yeah. Smart guy. Just
4: well-traveled, really interested in a lot of different things. Very worldly. Very worldly.
0: 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. for take it or leave it. From the 573, take it or leave it. Le'Veon Bell takes the starting job in Kansas City. Leave it.
4: I'm going to leave it, too.
0: Your
3: guy's pretty good, man. The LSU guy. Yeah, he's really good. Allaire.
4: Allaire. Clyde Edwards, Allaire.
0: Yeah. (laughs) This one from the 314. Take it or leave it. The Dylan Carlson will win a Silver Slugger Award during his career. I'll take it.
3: Good. I'm glad. He'll get one in left field or center field. He'll get one. At least. He's going to be a good hitter. (laughs) How about that positivity? I
4: was going to say, what, are we just trading positivities now?
0: Yep. From the 636, take it or leave it. Even after yesterday, Drew Locke is still the long-term answer in Denver, and he will lead them to playoff victories.
3: I'll take it.
4: He is so... I feel like Drew Locke and Baker Mayfield, the pendulum swings so widely for me. One week I I look like, oh, yeah, the Broncos have got something in him. It looks like he's going to be able to turn into something. Same thing with Baker. And then it swings the other way. And you're like, is he the answer? I'm not sure.
3: Thing is, with Baker, they've gotten him, they surrounded him with talent. And they got rid of all the talent in Denver. They just, they don't have receivers anymore. They do have a running back, but their offensive line has been beaten up. And I don't think that team is particularly well-run, either by Elway or Vic Fangio. I think that they probably need new leadership there for Drew Locke to succeed at his highest level.
0: And last one from the 618, take it or leave it. If the Cardinals sign Yachty, then they have to trade Kisner. I'll take that.
4: I'll take that, too. Because if he's not going to play, you might as well get something for him.
3: yep. Thank you, Scotty. You got it, man. And thanks for your text to the Air Comfort Service text line, 65780. Coming up, does this World Series and the success of the Rays and the Dodgers change the way baseball is played? That's next on 101 ESPN.
2: We're right back to the character and Smallman podcast on 101
3: ESPN. It's 8.02 in St. Louis. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. And, uh, Michelle, as we provide our fresh take today. I'm really intrigued by this World Series which has been anything but boring. It's been fantastic and the games have been interesting and you had a ton of runs scored game 1 8 to 3 Dodgers, game 2 6 to 4 Rays, game 3 6 to 2 Dodgers and then the last two have been 8 to 7 with the drama on Saturday night and then 4 to 2 last night but the Rays had opportunities pretty much in every uh, one of the last three or four innings. So uh, a lot has happened. But when you look at the way the teams have scored, and yes, there have been a lot of home runs, but the fact that teams can manufacture runs again, I wonder if we might see other teams that can't afford to get the big home run hitters like Mookie Betts and uh, a a guy like uh, Jock Peterson who's having a a terrific postseason, or, or Bellinger or Turner. I wonder if teams might actually get back to fundamentals and start trying to manufacture runs the way that Tampa Bay has multiple times in the series. And by the way, they in the first couple of rounds, they were scoring in the 70 percentages of their runs on home runs. But in this series, they've done a lot of really good things in terms of trying to score runs without home runs.
4: Yeah, I remember after the Muncie home run last night on the broadcast, they said that the Dodgers have nine different players with the home run in the World Series. And that's a, as of game five. And not every team is going to be built like that. But when you're watching Tampa Bay, they have a nice mix of both. They have guys that hit for, hit for power, they're manufacturing runs. It seems like they're all either team, whichever approach you're looking at, it's been so exciting because guys are always on base, guys are always getting hit. It's, it seems like whether it's a home run, or, or something else. It's back to back to back to back. So I would imagine other teams might be looking at the Rays and saying, okay, if we don't have the power, maybe we can develop a different offensive approach.
3: And if you look at Tampa Bay, especially, when you're talking about trying to build a team on a budget one of the things that they do have a wealth of is athleticism and obviously we we, we've seen the freakish athleticism of a rose arena but willie adamas can do things athletically we saw yandy diaz last night get the triple uh they're getting really good work out of kiermaier in this particular series who can run and hit and hit for power and field and throw when they got austin meadows from pittsburgh they touted his athleticism. They have a lot of people that can do a lot of really good things, just in terms of athleticism. Not necessarily in terms of being a good baseball player because there's a difference between being a good athlete and being a good player but then you look at the Dodgers Mookie Betts might be the best athlete in the sport right now but he's
4: incredible he,
3: he is and he does everything well doesn't he
4: everything did you see that video that was floating around over the weekend of him playing basketball it was it was him doing all of these incredible athletic feats and you're right yeah. he's just built different
3: yeah and, and and the other thing he's done is he's polished his baseball game. His, his baseball tools are immaculate. But then they have a guy like Bellinger, a guy like Seeger, uh, a guy like Kike Hernandez and, and Taylor. I think athleticism is kind of an underrated aspect of baseball, winning baseball these days. And I, I, if I were a team and I were trying to build a winner... I would start with athleticism and not just some big lumbering guy that might or might not be able to field at third base and uh, strikes out a lot and and has the tendency sometimes to hit a lot of home runs. First base, you know, that's the place where you get that big guy, but it can't hurt to have a better athlete on your team.
4: Okay, fun question for you. Who is the best athlete on the St. Louis Cardinals right now? I think it's Wong. He, I thought about him. He's the first name that popped into my mind. You know who else is in that conversation is Tyler O'Neill?
3: Oh, yeah. Good call. Yeah. Because he's he's he, fast. He, he can fly. He's strong. Good arm. Yeah. Gold glove finalist. When he hits it, it goes a long way. He is really strong. Now, that's a perfect example. Is his hitting polished enough for us to call him a baseball player? Or is he an athlete that happens to be playing baseball right now?
4: Is it the chicken or the egg?
3: Right. (laughs) So I would like to see the Cardinals get more of those guys. And I believe Dylan Carlson has athletic ability. There's no question that Harrison Bader is a good athlete. And has a ton of ability. In addition to Wong, but there's the difference is... You don't have guys that are fully formed baseball players at this point. They have athletic ability, but you have to find a way to teach them how to play the game properly. And when you don't have a ton of power, you have to be able to get your bat on the ball and utilize your tools, your speed, and your athleticism.
4: Do you think the Cardinals are going to alter their offensive approach at all based on the talent that they have or do you think they're going to make the talent that they have tried to alter themselves to fit the approach
3: i wish i knew and the cardinals have not had a media get together on zoom or any other way since the season ended so we don't know if jeff albert is going to be back it seems like the cardinals are pretty well set in their ways in terms of their approach i would think that they would try to get their athletes to play they, the way they want them to play. And I think we've seen that under Mike Schilt over the last couple of years. And there are a lot of good things that happened. They, they had the best base running team in 2019. They had the best fielding team in 2019. The only issue I think any of us can really have with the ball club, because they do have athletes, as we just mentioned, is th- the offense mm-hmm. and the way they try to play offense. And it's become a sport of three to, uh, three true outcomes Home run, walk, or strikeout. And the Cardinals fit that mold. But if you look at these teams, they are kind of breaking that mold. And I think that's what the Cardinals need to do is find guys that actually can hit. That would be great. <laughs> or, or turn them into hitters.
4: I was going say, or maybe they can. And they're just in their heads. Are, are they... I, I don't know. I just find it hard... I, the truth is somewhere in the middle. The truth is somewhere in the middle that, yes, some of these guys probably don't have it anymore or they haven't developed. And as Boob Shambi said to Bernie and I, they might just need better dudes. Yep. But I also think when you look at some of these guys, you have to wonder, especially as we see other players leave the organization and have success, offensive success elsewhere is it something about the approach that is prohibiting them from reaching their maximum offensive potential?
3: And everybody is different. I want to preface this by saying that you can't make everybody into a great player. But I do look at the start of George Springer's offensive career. A lot of people want the Cardinals to sign George Springer as a free agent and the start of Harrison Bader's career and the trajectory that Springer took as a member of the Astros, and maybe cheating had something to do with it, I don't know. But he he was doing the exact same things as Bader early in his career, but then got better. I don't know if Harrison Bader can become better, but I was hoping that maybe he would have that same trajectory as Springer, and he just hasn't. As a matter of fact, I think we can all argue that as opposed to two years ago, he's regressed, and you hate to see players that you think have a chance to be pretty good actually regress.
4: Yeah, no, you don't want that.
3: So <laughs> do Because we know they have the ability, and whether it's other pitchers and other pitching coaches finding the holes in their swing or whether it's the approach – or maybe too much information and their approach changes, whatever it is, it's frustrating to me to see guys that I know have ability that can't or don't utilize it to the best of its ability.
4: And if you're the Cardinals and this is a player that you could have moved on from, but you chose Mm -hmm. to retain and you still have confidence in, don't you want to get to the bottom of why they're not getting to the level that you want them or need them to get to? and if yep. it's i i understand In any organization, in any business, wanting one straight line of identity and communication. Mm -hmm. I I totally understand that. This is our ethos. This is what our approach is going to be. I get that. But I also think that every player, as you mentioned, is different and that what works for one player might not necessarily work for another player. So if you're having this blanket approach, and I don't don't know that that's what they're taking. I'm just using this as more of a general conversation point. If that's the approach they're taking, what may work for player A might not work for player B.
3: And Mike Schilt says, just like Tony did, they're men, not machines. I believe, and I know you do too, because you, you just said it, that perhaps they do get too analytically and information overload inclined when some players just don't need that. And let's be honest about it. Some players just aren't smart enough to handle that sort of information. Some some players do have great athletic ability. And what you do is you, you just let that athletic ability blossom and, and be great. And maybe there's a tweak here or there, but the old... Kiss, keep it simple, stupid, yep. <laughs> is the approach to take rather than loading athletes up with all kinds of information. It happens in every sport. We've seen it in football, where remember Brian Quick, he could never figure out the offense. Yeah. And the, the best thing that they could do for him, and they even when they just let him be, he he didn't do anything. So let me give you a perfect example. Randy Moss was a terrible route runner. But what teams did with him, especially in Minnesota and New England, He said, don't worry about routes. You just run a nine route, and we'll throw the ball to you as far as we can. And his athletic ability took over. So it happens in every sport.
4: I think Marcel Ozuna is the interesting case study here. And I know during his time in St. Louis, there were injuries. There were things that might have contributed to him not being what he has been before and after. Um, He was with St. Louis. But I wonder how much of whatever the approach was here impacted him.
3: It seems to be something there there seems to be something there when you think about what he did in Miami then what he did here and then what he did in Atlanta there seems to be something there
4: and again i know there was a shoulder most famous line you can lead a horse to water but you can't force it yeah. to drink he he resisted getting the surgery and i know that probably impacted his overall performance his total mm-hmm. performance in St. Louis but you still have to wonder how much that that factored in
3: he did lead the league in homers and RBIs this year Pretty good. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And this is 101 ESPN. Coming up, are the Blues going to have their best power play since the days of McInnes and Pronger and Hull? Chris Kerber will give us his thoughts on that next on 101 ESPN. We are
2: right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.
3: We head to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line and the voice of your St. Louis Blues here on 101 ESPN is Chris Kerber. Kerbs, hope your weekend was good. How are you doing?
6: doing really well. It was it was a good one. So uh we'll we'll have some fun today and this week I think
7: and just keep plugging ahead.
3: Is it weird for you and I know that everything is weird, but here we are <laughs> October 26th. Is it weird for you to not have hockey at this time of year?
6: Uh it is really wild. Uh it's but but you know what? I I I choose just to take the uh, uh, the blessing side of it, Randy. And I mean I've been able to be home while the kids are dealing with the virtual school learning, uh, and you know, while Christie's back in the classroom too. So it's been, uh, you know, it, it's been one of those blessing in disguise things uh, and things that I normally am not able to do. Like we're actually knowing that we won't start until at least January 1st and Bill Daly came out yesterday, the, you know, with the GMs and said, who knows what, I mean, they gave the GMs basically said that there are so many different options, too many to get through, but, uh, You know, sitting there and actually being able to plan some family time around some holidays that that I've never been able to do uh, really since college is is unique, and we're just going to take advantage of it and, and take it in stride.
4: That's the silver lining curves. That's exactly the way to look at it. But you mentioned that you might not see we might not see any hockey action until at least January. How much of these discussions, if not all of them, do you think are surrounded by, okay, when can we get fans in the stands? Because in reading and listening to some things about the financial viability of all sports, it really has me zeroing in on the NHL and just how crucial it is to get that fan revenue, that ticket revenue back into the fold.
6: Well, it's crucial for every sport, uh, and and but the reality of it is, it comes down to the fact that much like it was important to get these seasons started, and we're watching a World Series, and you're watching NFL games, you watch the NHL, you watch the NBA. You, I mean, NASCAR, all of these sports with with little to no fans in the stands. Uh, at, at some point, though, they may have to continue with that plan just to keep the product going. So. Um, you know, the the trends with coronavirus are what they are. That's obviously the major driving force here. And, and it's going to be a, it's going to be quite a challenge. There's so many different scenarios that even when Bill Daly talked with the media yesterday, I believe it was, he, people were saying, well, yeah, we're still, he said, well, we we're still eyeing January 1st in a full 82 game schedule. I just don't know how realistic that legitimately is. And he said as much in that. So I still think they're looking for anything from a a season that could be 48 games all the way up. My gut feels that it it falls within a 58 to 62, 64 range, but I hope they're right. They can get more in. Uh, But you have to be thinking safety of the players, condensed schedule, TV contract. If the Olympics are are done in in July, and, and NBC has TV contracts around that event as well. There's so many different factors here. And then another unique one that's good that that they're talking about at the GM meetings, guys, is the fact that, like, what do you do with the seven teams that didn't return to play? So there's seven teams that basically have not been on the ice or been around each other since March 11th. And they're actually talking about, do you give those teams extended training camp time? I mean, the scenarios are off the charts.
3: Curbs, I'm thinking about the elements of the Blues power play with the addition of Krug. He joins either Pareco or Falk on that right side, and then you have O'Reilly, Perron, Schwartz up front with various and other, sundry other uh, players up front. But the Blues had their best power play in a long time last year, at nearly 25%. I like the elements of this power play actually better than what the Blues had last year. and I, I, I kind of think we can go back to the 90s with McInnes and Pronger and Hull and that group to find the elements of a power play that are as solid as the elements of this one have, uh, th- that they have a chance to be.
6: Yeah, it's, uh, that's going to be a fun aspect of this. Tori Krug is, is going to help out that power play immensely. There's no doubt about that. Now, Mark Savard, who kind of was in charge of coaching that power play, he's not returning behind the bench. Jimmy Montgomery is the new assistant coach for the team, as we all know. But you're right. The the fact that they have the options, David Perron playing out at that point is always good. The question for me is still going to come down to this. The structure that they put it up. Vladimir Tarasenko likes to be on that left side. Like the, The Blues, even as good as the power play was through the regular season last year, they really never seemed to be much of a one-timer threat. Their best one-timer threat was Alex Petrangelo. Mm-hmm. We know that scenario now. If, like, at some point in time, at some point in time, I would love to see them say, "I don't care what has to happen, but I don't care if we go over the first thirty on the power play. The puck goes to Pareko for a one-timer, and he lets it rip. Put that big guy where he can fire it." Somebody get him a puck where he could pass it, and I don't care about the egos or whatever else is going on. If Vladimir Tarasenko insists on playing on the left side, it's just not good enough over there. It takes too much time, uh, you know, to get the puck across his body. There were just issues of mixing the left and the right-handed shot when you do things like that. So the addition of Krug and their ability, if they can get to a shooting one-timer mentality, is going to keep that thing rolling. And, again, it was – I mean, it was good enough, and they had two power play units at a time. When they were clicking, holy smokes, does it change the game.
4: Kerbs, speaking of Petro not being with the team anymore, we've had a lot of talks about who might wear the C in Petro's absence and a lot of people I think have zeroed in on Ryan O'Reilly and you know, I just want to have you tell us and the listeners what kind of a leader Ryan O'Reilly is. It seems like a lot of people talk about how he leads by example how he's such a hard worker and that tends to rub off on his teammates but do you think if he wears the C that that's something that he'll have to change a little bit will he have to be more vocal? Just if you could explain how he's a leader and how that might change, or if it will at all, if he's the captain?
6: I don't think it will. I it, it, It's an interesting question from that, because sometimes it does happen if, if you put that letter on on somebody. And But I just think that, look, this the leadership by committee aspect of this hockey team is, is what's been one of the strengths. So again, to me, the only problem with the, the, the captain is when you put it on the wrong person, and I don't think that's possible here in this scenario, when you look at the way Ryan O'Reilly handled things from his first couple of practices on the ice and being on the ice long after practice with, with the young players. And you look at the number of young guys that have stayed on the ice and done Ryan O'Reilly drills. They're not just staying on the ice to kill time. I mean, Ryan is at times running his own drills, you know, and, and there's specific skill related drills. The one where he works to get to his backhand and then roof it. And he scores goals that way. I mean, that's the that to me is the leading by example you're referring to, Michelle. I, I think in the room, you've got such a strong base here still of, of plenty of guys that uh, the liaison, the respect that Ryan O'Reilly has, his ability to communicate to Craig Berube, which is a critical part of that role, is, is really important. And look, and, and in the end, too, I, I've said this, and it is fun to talk about, if, if it's not Ryan O'Reilly, who seems to be an obvious choice, you know, I, I think in, in – Colton Pareco and Brayden Shen, you've got two other really good options. Colton Pareco was one of the players, you know, that, that was basically the player's rep, uh, jumping into all the PA meetings and things and then letting his teammates know what was going on on the return-to-play scenario. So, again, it's not going to all have to come down on one guy, but I think where he is at in his career, his attitude, where things have been, what he's gone through, and then to do what he's done the last couple of years, I mean, Ryan becomes the very obvious choice.
3: Curbs, one more thing before we let you go. Mark Lazarus has a good piece up at The Athletic about Taves and Kane and the Blackhawks. And I don't know about you, but that that situation where they're rebuilding and Taves and Kane and Keith and Seabrook aren't happy about it. I cry myself to sleep at night uh, because I, I feel so bad for the Blackhawks and those guys.
6: Uh, yeah, that, doesn't it just make you miserable? I mean, you, you get up in the morning like, oh, man, what are those guys going to do? <laughs> You know, right, yeah. I mean, how are they, they going to survive? I will tell you, though, right? And, like, no no sorrow, especially with the quips of Jonathan Taves whatsoever. Let's hope they wallow in misery for another three years. <laughs> but but I'll tell you, it will be interesting to see which one of those dominoes falls. I mean, at some point in time, if they are in a rebuild, one of those guys becomes a chip that puts you in there. I, I just don't see them having Taves, Kane, Keith, and Seabrook playing out those contracts at all. I mean, I, I I think the one that has the best chance uh, is 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 Patrick Kane to me. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I almost I'd almost like I'd be willing to put the prop bet that Jonathan Taves is one of the guys moved.
3: Uh, I would not be surprised. I I kind of think if I were to guess, I would think that either they buy out Seabrook or he comes up with a skin condition. <laughs> yes.
6: <laughs> Oh, so you're saying he's traveled to visit Marion Hosa? Exactly. Ah, Yeah. You know what? I like the way you're thinking. I think this is definitely one horse we should keep kicking while they're down.
3: <laughs> you bet. Curbs, have a great day. Thanks so much for the time. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon.
6: That was an awesome way to start the week, Randy. Well done.
3: Glad you you. enjoyed it. (laughs) We'll see you later. By the way, this week we've got hockey coverage for you. This Week in Hockey coming up Thursday night with Joey Vitale and Alex Ferrario. Always good to have those guys with us on 101 ESPN, talking blues hockey throughout the year here on your Home of the Blues 101 ESPN. Next up, the fight is coming your way with Carrick and Smallman.
2: We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Welcome to the fight on Character and Smallman. In the red corner, Average Joe Listener. And in the blue corner, the undisputed king of Morty.
4: Welcome back to Carragher and Smallman here on 101 ESPN. It's 835 on this Monday. That time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex Schuler. And I believe Dan is with us, right, Scott? Yeah, Dan, what's going on, man? Dan, good morning. Good morning.
0: How are you guys doing? We
4: are doing great. We were just talking in the break about that Wild World Series finish on Saturday night. Dan, did you get a chance to watch that game?
6: Yeah, and I kind of got perturbed when they said it was the most wild, craziest, greatest game, and they seemed to forget game six of uh, 2011. It reminded me more of the game when Alan Craig scored on that wild play at the end. I would think that was more of a similar, but nothing compares to game six of 2011.
4: Yeah, you know, there is recency bias, so we're always living in the moment. But that certainly brought us back to Game 6. And, of course, we have a hometown flavor there. But down to your last strike twice, I mean, the drama there is pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. All right, Dan. Well, that hopefully we have a dramatic fight today. Hopefully you can challenge Randy. So let's get things going let's here. Hope. <laughs> let's hope so. Look it, yeah, Dan, let's kick your week off on a positive <laughs> note. Why not? Let's, let's do this. All right, Dan. I love your energy. Question number one. Where did Andy Dalton play college football? Was it TCU, Texas, or Texas Tech?
7: TCU.
4: Say that one more time, Dan. Sorry, Dan, your phone cut out. I think you can you give us that answer one more time.
0: Texas Christian University. There you go, Dan. All right, question number two for you, Dan. Since 2015, how many World Series have gone to seven games? Note, this includes the 2015 World Series. Is it one, two, or three times?
4: okay Dan question number three prior to Saturday's win what year did Mizzou last beat Kentucky in football was it 2014 2015 or 2016
0: 2014 and your final question Dan Brett Phillips was the hero in game five for the Rays before joining the Rays which team did he play for was it the Brewers the Reds or the Royals wow (laughs) the
4: red was that just a shot in the dark there
0: Uh, all four have been unfortunately (laughs) we can't tell you how you did Dan but good luck Thank
6: you.
4: You know the one thing about the drama on set from Saturday Night's World Series game, as opposed to Game Six of the 2011 World Series, is that David Freeze, even though he's the hometown hero and that's such a storyline, he had a great postseason. He was in the playoffs. Here's Brett Phillips, who's the keep it simple coach, coming off the bench for the hero. So that, you know, while the David Freeze drama was great, that adds an, a little something extra to it. Randy, say good morning good to Dan.
5: Hey,
3: Dan, how you doing? Randolph, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for taking some time with us, and it's good to have you on the show. You're welcome. Thanks.
4: Randolph, huh?
3: Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> so there there are multiple people that call me Randolph. Really? Yeah. I get some of that. Even
4: though you're a Randall? Yeah. It's fine. I love Randolph. Should that be your new nickname on the show?
3: It can be if you'd like it to be. <laughs>
4: Randolph character. That sounds like you're a Baron. <laughs>
3: um,
4: baron, Bar- Randolph baron, baron Randolph,
3: Randolph. Totally. <laughs> Let's go to the... Let's go to the shoot. Let's go play some polo. I wonder if, if rich people call it polo.
4: What do you think they call it?
3: I don't know. There's got to be another name for it.
4: A rich name for polo? Yeah. I think yep. polo is pretty rich itself.
3: Yeah,
0: it yeah. Yeah, I had a rich his, history teacher that played polo. Oh, yeah? Yeah.
3: That's pretty cool.
4: I don't know anyone that pl- that has played or ever played polo. I know there's that polo classic up in New York a lot of my friends uh-huh. go to when we used to be able to go to things, but I don't know anyone that's like, you know what I do in my free time? Polo. Hmm
3: we got to get you going on that.
4: Do you know someone that plays polo? No. Yeah, (laughs) okay. Well, it's being a baron and all. I thought it might be something you dabble in, Randy. (laughs) Okay, question number one. Where did Andy Dalton play college football?
3: At Texas Christian University,
0: TCU. Question number two, Randy. Since 2015, how many World Series have gone to seven games? Note, this includes the 2015 World Series.
3: Okay, so you would have that uh, Royals-Mets... 26, and I believe that one uh, went 7. 2016 went 7. 2017, that was uh, Dodgers-Astros. I think that one did too, right? Uh, I know it went back to, yes it did. 2018. Uh, That was the Dodgers again. Who did they lose to that year? Um, I don't think it did. Who did they lose to? Oh, Red Sox. Yeah, that one didn't. Um, And then last year did. So I'm going to go four.
4: Randy, prior to Saturday's win, what year did Mizzou last beat Kentucky in football?
3: So, Saturday was 2020, and they'd lost five in a row, which would be 19, 18, 17, 16, 15. I'm going to say 2014. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. 2014, that final answer.
0: All right, Randy, final question. Brett Phillips was the hero in game five for the Rays.
3: Before joining the Rays, which team did he play for? He was a member of the Royals, Kansas City Royals. With cheese? Yes.
2: We've got a winner. We have a winner and still champion, Randy Carriker. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Your best choice for quality tires and expert auto service. Dobbs.
4: Well, Dan, for taking some shots in the dark, you did a great job. Randy just edged you out three to two. Randy takes the victory here. Andy Dolm played his college football at TCU. Which Cardinal went to TCU?
3: Matt Carpenter and Lucan Baker, uh, future first baseman.
4: There you go, Horn Frogs. Um, how many World Series have gone to game, seven games since 2015? It's three. 2016, 2017, and 2019. Uh, prior to Saturday's win, the last time Mizzou beat Kentucky in football was 2014. That was a 20-10 to 10 win over Kentucky, and prior to joining the Tampa Bay Rays, Brett Phillips did play for the Kansas City Royals. He was traded to the Rays on August twenty seventh, 2020. Dan, thank you so much for playing.
3: You're welcome. Have a great week, guys. All right, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time with us. We do appreciate it. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, it's overreaction Monday. Are the Steelers Super Bowl contenders, and should Mike McCarthy be on the hot seat already in Dallas? That's coming your way on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the
2: Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.
3: All right, Overreaction Monday on Character and Smallman. And Michelle... The Pittsburgh Steelers, thank you, Randy. Uh,
4: (laughs) I know this was coming. The
3: Pittsburgh Steelers are the only unbeaten team left in the National Football League. I believe it was week three. Uh, Bless you, Scotty. Yeah, time. Somebody asked uh, us uh, via the text line, the Air Comfort Service text line 65780, who we thought the last unbeaten team in the NFL would be. And I said, well, it's the Steelers. Mm -hmm. And I think you two both picked other teams, but I picked the Steelers. And here they are, the only unbeaten team left in the National Football League. They also are in a conference with the Chiefs and with the Titans who were in the AFC Championship game last year and with the Ravens in their own division. So the question is, at 6-0, are the Steelers legitimate Super Bowl contenders even though their conference is as tough as it is?
4: I would definitely say yes, wouldn't you?
3: Yes. I, if Even if I'm Kansas City, if I'm Tennessee, who the Steelers beat yesterday, by the way, on the road, or if I'm the Ravens. I don't want to go into Pittsburgh, even if there aren't fans there. I don't want to go into Pittsburgh and try to win a playoff game. So absolutely, I think if they can avoid further injury, and I think losing Devin Bush was huge, if they can av- avoid losing further, uh, other players to injury, I think they are absolutely a contender for the Super Bowl championship.
4: And heading into the season, remember Ben Roethlisberger saying how he was so nervous to start playing again and how he mm-hmm. was shaking like a leaf after that. Fir- or heading into that first game? I think a lot of that you know, was him being honest about what it's like having to get back into the the rhythm of things, but it was probably a little bit for dramatics because he's Ben Roethlisberger, right? Right. He knows how to do it. And I just think that this is a formidable team and they're one of the best teams in the league and they're definitely legit. I think my team that I picked to be the last I'm beating was Seattle. Who up until pretty close. yesterday, pretty close. Yeah. But I think that this is why this season is so interesting, is because you have a handful of teams that are true Super Bowl contenders. And it's going to be really interesting to see how these teams continue this push as the season goes on.
3: I do think that Kansas City is the best team. I think the Steelers are absolutely a contender. I think all of them are. But I think Kansas City is the best team.
4: And adding Le'Veon Bell to the mix?
3: Yeah, they'll even better. And Spags has that defense going. Now in the NFC, it's really interesting. The Bears play tonight <laughs> against the Rams here on 101 ESPN Monday Night Football. They're five and one. Seattle is five and one. Green Bay is five and one. Mm-hmm. Tampa is five and two. And don't sleep on the five and two Arizona Cardinals, who beat Seattle last night. They've won three in a row. And both offensively and defensively. They're putting things together. I'm telling you, Michelle, I watched uh, Kyler Murray a lot. I have watched him a lot. And especially last night as you watch his game grow, he looks like a faster version of Russell Wilson.
4: Yeah, he looks great. He looks unbelievable. I was thinking about this. Looking at the NFC West, Do you have a collection of four pretty good teams. Now, we don't know how legit the Rams are. I think mm-hmm. we'll find out a lot about the Rams tonight, don't you? Who do you think we're going to find more out about tonight, the Bears or the Rams? The Rams. The Rams.
3: Yeah. 4-0 against the NFC least and 0-2 against the rest of the league. So... Uh, Are they really that good? We're going to find something out about them.
4: But looking at the NFC West, I was thinking about coaches. And there's a pretty good collection of coaches going in the NFC West right now. You know, there was questions about Cliff Kingsbury. He seems to be having things Mm -hmm. rolling in Arizona. You certainly have Pete Carroll there. You have have Sean McVay. You have Kyle Shanahan. Is that the best collection of coaches in the league?
3: I would say in a division.
4: In a division, that's what I mean, yeah.
3: Absolutely. I, I think... I don't even know if it's close right now because those are all known quantities and they're they're multi talented. When you think about a guy like Shanahan with his ability to call plays, maybe the best in the league, Pete Carroll has been a defensive guru Four years cliff kingsbury basically brought a new offense to mm-hmm. the nfl and then you have a guy that can host american idol in addition to being <laughs> a head coach of an nfl team uh, yeah you you've got four talented coaches but then you look at the rest of the league a- atlanta doesn't even have a full-time coach right now mm-hmm. uh, mike zimmer is having a rough go of it i think matt patricia is pretty bad in detroit uh yesterday well, with ha- having what happened notwithstanding Matt Nagy is still, I think, a question mark. When you look at the NFC East, Peterson's won a Super Bowl. Rivera's been to a Super Bowl. McCarthy has won a Super Bowl, but you don't know about Joe Judge. AFC West, Reed is great. Gruden is what he is. He's basically a 500 coach. Uh, I think Anthony Lynn has a chance to be really good, but Fangio has not been good so far. AFC South, Just too many unknowns, and Texas doesn't have a full-time coach right now, and Marone appears to be bad. So I think if you look at all the divisions, aside from that, you either have unproven or bads. You don't have anybody that's unproven, and you don't have anybody that's bad in the NFC, and you've got three guys that have been to the Super Bowl out of the four.
4: That's right. Pretty good.
3: Yeah, very impressive. All right. The disaster in Dallas continues to unfold. Andy Dalton is in the concussion protocol, and a guy named Joe is it Denucci is ben. going to be the Ben okay <laughs> see I, he's kind of an unknown Michelle he was the starter at James Madison last year and Mike McCarthy compares him to a young Mark Bolger to be their starting quarterback
4: and as somebody who followed Mark Bolger's career how does that make you feel Randy
3: um well as long as he's a rookie he's fine once he gets the money though look out cuz he might not be as competitive as he was before
4: you think he's going to get the money, Ben DiNucci?
3: No, I don't. <laughs> but I, I I, wish the guy, come on, he's a cowboy. I don't wish him that much luck. But I, I do think it's interesting. And you know what? Of all years, they finally go out and get themselves a legit backup in Andy Dalton. They lose their starter and they say, oh, man, really good that they signed Andy Dalton. And then they lose him too. It's really, if you're a Cowboys fan, it's unfortunate.
4: Oh, of course it is. And I, I think that we knew... Dak Prescott was the leader of that team, that he was a guy who had so much to do with what was an identity for that team. But I think that was Never on display more than it was yesterday after that Andy Dalton hit. Didn't it just seem like so many of those Cowboy t- players, obviously they didn't do anything after, after it happened. But it just seems like there was no team spirit, that, there, that it would, there was no sense of, hey, this is our guy. You can't do this to him on our team. It was just really
3: a bummer to watch. And I think part of the reason is, is your leaders generally on offense are your offensive linemen. And they had zero of their starting offensive lineman yesterday. Uh, Their normal starting left tackle, Tyron Smith, is out. Uh, they, they had Connor Williams out, Connor McGovern was in, uh, they're missing Joe Looney, their normal center, he's on IR, Zach Martin was out, and they're missing their right tackle Al La- Collins. They have zero of their starting offensive linemen, and that hinders leadership. I can totally get what happened there, and I know people are blasting the Cowboys today, but who's going to go after the Redskins or the, the Washington football team players that laid a cheap shot on Andy Dalton when you really don't have your veteran leadership there. Who? who, I wonder who people expected, what Cowboy was expected to go after those guys. Amari Cooper?
4: Zeke Elliott? Or or at least do something. And and I get your point about the lack of veteran leadership on the field in that moment, even though there were guys out there, Amari, Zeke, etc., CeeDee Lamb, that... (laughs) Are certainly aren't backups, but I think it speaks more to what the mentality is in the locker room because whether you're a backup or you're a a solidified veteran player, as a competitor and as a teammate in that moment Mm -hmm. don't you think that your rank and your status shouldn't matter? That you should just inherently react to what happened to your teammate?
3: The fact that nobody did anything
4: anything. to
3: John Bostic is that's alarming and that is a a lack of esprit de corps on the team. And the the really good coaches get their guys to protect each other, to cheer for each other, to build an esprit de corps. I remember watching a Belichick video one time where they were playing really well, and I think they were blowing somebody out. And he stopped the tape and he said, what's going on here? And uh, we scored a touchdown. He said, but nobody came over to celebrate with the guy who scored the touchdown. Nobody on the sideline is cheering. What's going on? Why are you guys rooting for each other and cheering for each mm. other? And that's one way to build esprit de corps. Obviously, nobody in the history of football and maybe sports has done that better than Dick Vermeil mm-hmm. to build a family-type atmosphere where people really do care about each other. And that's something that McCarthy, I don't know if he's capable of it, but it certainly hasn't happened yet in Dallas if he is capable of it.
4: And how much blame do you place on him for that? Because Tough situation for for him as a new guy, but especially if you're coming into a situation where something like that already existed, really hard to kind of clean that up yeah. as you're going, especially when you're the leader on the field is out.
3: That's part of a culture.
4: It's a culture. That's and right.
3: And that, that's an issue that they have. And when you look at the best teams going right now, look at the Steelers mm-hmm. and If anything happens to one of their guys, it happens to all of their guys, and that's the approach that a football team has to take, and obviously Dallas didn't. And I I just think that if they had a Zach Martin or a Tyron Smith or a Joe Looney in there, I think that's a different scenario yesterday. Maybe Dalton doesn't get hit like that.
4: Do you think McCarthy's on the hot seat already? I
3: think he is. Wow. Yeah, and I know that... Jerry Jones is averse to firing coaches and spending that kind of money to fire a coach that he gave a three-year contract to. But I absolutely can see him being on the hot seat. And at the very least, Mike Nolan, their defensive coordinator, because they've got a couple of potential defensive coordinators being on the hot seat there. I could totally see that happening in Dallas.
4: I tend to look at it through the lens of, if you're Mike McCarthy, you're talking to Jerry Jones and you're saying, hey, pandemic, all these weird things happening, then Dak Prescott gets removed from the mix. I think he has a built-in excuse for anything that goes wrong from that moment on out. That, hey, we didn't have Dak. Imagine what I would have been able to do with Dak, even though there were problems Mm -hmm. that preceded that injury. I still think if you're Jerry Jones, if if you're the Cowboys' Front office, anyone in that room that could potentially make that decision, you're going to say, hey, this is a guy who had success for a long time in Green Bay. This is a guy who won a Super Bowl, and I don't think we should give up on him so quickly. Think about how long they stuck with Jason Garrett.
3: I know, and I think a lot of that had to do with Jerry's loyalty. I think now it's going to have to do with the contract that McCarthy has with the Cowboys. I think as much as Jerry has... He doesn't want to pay a guy to not coach for him. And McCarthy got a five-year deal worth $30 million. And I, that's the one part of it that would really shock me, is if Jones would get rid of a guy after one year or during a first year when he's paying him that much money, $6 million a year. Man. That's for Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, today's big thing, including this date in Cardinals history on 101 ESPN. Carriker and Smallman, it's 9.04. Time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. And if you miss anything on today's show, check out our podcast brought to you by I Promise. And of course, you can check that out at 101ESPN.com or just download that free 101ESPN app. Michelle, it's been fun to watch this World Series because teams are actually pushing the envelope, trying to do things. Last night, Manuel Margot, bases uh, runner at third. He's the runner at third. Uh, with nobody out, and then with one out, and then with two out, and he tries to steal home. Here's Tim Kirkjian
5: first and third, nobody out, trying to protect a one-run lead. He made great pitches in that inning to get the two out. And then Manny Margot knew, well, at this point, we might not get a hit off of this guy, so he tried to steal home. No one's really tried a straight steal of home like that with no other conditions since 1982. And for Kershaw to recognize that this guy is going home and step off the rubber perfectly and make a pretty good throw to the plate just shows you a veteran pitcher who doesn't panic in a situation like that. That game turned when Kershaw got out of the fourth inning without allowing a run.
3: By the way, guess which team stole home in the 1982 World Series?
4: Was it the St. Louis Cardinals?
3: Yes, those world champions, St. Louis (laughs) Cardinals. That was pretty cool to see. And by the way, it was all on Margot. The manager, Kevin Cash, and third base coach didn't say anything to him. He took it upon himself. Didn't succeed, but it was a good play.
4: Yeah, you appreciate the effort there. And how about Clayton Kershaw? Going out there, dealing, but knowing uh, the narrative surrounding him is about not getting it done in the postseason. You have to imagine that that's something that creeps in his head. But how about him? Once he gets in there, gets in a rhythm, gets locked in, knows to make a play like that. As much as we've talked about how this this postseason and this World Series may or may not affect his legacy, mm-hmm. I even though it's unfair to him, if they win, it will. If they don't, people will forget, which, like I mentioned, is not fair. But you have to look at games like that and the things that he's been doing and hope that people wipe away some of the stuff that he's done in the postseason, the
5: negative
3: stuff. And Michelle was a huge win for the Dodgers, too. Chris Singleton, who's calling the games here on 101 ESPN,
5: said that Game 5 was a bigger one for the Dodgers than it would have been for the Rays. I would say that the Dodgers needed more, and here's why. Because... The Rays going into game six, they have Blake Snell starting for them. 2018 Cy Young Award winner. He hasn't been that dominant this postseason, but he's still a quality starter. Pretty good his last time out. The Dodgers are going Johnny Holstaff. I mean, they're good. it's a bullpen game. They don't know. Maybe Tony Gonsolin is going to start. They'll get a little bit from Arias. So a little bit of a different situation there in terms of guarantee of a starter out of the gate. So I think this was more of a must-win. If they didn't win the Dodgers after collapsing and losing in Game 4, if they lost Game 5 tonight, the pressure would be, I mean, immense in Game 6.
3: They have a lot of pressure. And it would have been, yeah, to be... uh...
5: The Snell can tie it.
3: I do think it's going to be the Dodgers. I think they're going to win, but I think they did have to get last night.
4: Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? After that Saturday night game, then the Rays come and they take the next one. And all of a sudden, all of this stuff that you've already had in the back of your mind about how close the team has been and how you haven't been able to get it done. And, oh my gosh, my opportunities to get it done are Mm -hmm. dwindling now. The the Rays have that much more momentum. Yeah, it definitely was uh, maybe not a must win, but uh, pretty close for the Dodgers. Yeah,
3: We will have game number six for you tomorrow night here on 101 ESPN.
2: 101 ESPN presents The State in Cardinal Postseason History Looking back at the journeys to 11 World Championships
1: Brought to you by Woods
2: Basement Systems The highest rated, most reviewed, all things basementy experts WoodsBasementSystems.com On 101 ESPN
3: Michelle, on this date, back on in 2006, October 26th of 2006, the Cardinals moved to the brink of a world championship with a 5-4 win over Detroit. Tigers grabbed a 3-0 lead, but the Cardinals scored single runs in the third and fourth. It was 3-2 Detroit heading into the bottom of the seventh when David Eckstein let off.
6: Off the end of the bat into right center field. Granderson falls down and won't make the
3: play. Eckstein will cruise around second and hold at second. With a double. Now, if there's going to be an outfielder that falls during that World Series, you wouldn't think it was going to be Curtis Granderson, would you? No. Wouldn't you think like Chris Duncan would have been the guy? Yeah, maybe. Kind of. Another error by another Detroit pitcher, Fernando Rodney, threw away the bunt and it was tied at three. Cardinals scored another in that inning, but Detroit tied it at four in the bottom of the eighth, and then Eckstein struck again. Eckstein flies one into left. Monroe is not going to get it. And the Cardinals lead it five-four here in the eighth inning of Game Four. Closed it down in the ninth and won Game Four by a score of five to four, taking a three-one lead in the series.
4: David Eckstein,
3: MVP, MVP. Who would have thought? Not me. That's baseball for you. Normally in basketball, it's somebody that you expect. Not always. Sometimes Andre Iguodala wins NBA. MVP of the of the finals. Usually in hockey, it's somebody that you've heard of. Normally in football, it's the quarterback. It's somebody that you are well aware of and you would expect to win MVP. Brett Phillips drives in game-winning runs. David Eckstein wins World Series MVPs. That's one of the great things about baseball is that little guy that you don't expect to do it can step up and do it.
4: Remember that yellow Corvette he got? Yeah, I wonder where it is. I know he gave the car to his dad. I wonder if his he gave it dad... to his
3: brother. I think.
4: I think I thought he gave it to his dad. Either what way, a family member. I wonder if they still have it. I'm sure they do, right?
3: I would think so. Yeah, we have to get him on, and see if we can find out where that car is. So, by the way, uh, it was the 1982 Cardinals in that 13-1 game six victory over the Brewers. Lonnie Smith thrown out at home. In uh, Game Six against Milwaukee, that was the last time that somebody had tried to steal home in a World Series game. Wow! So now you know via radio. <laughs> so, and that is this date in Cardinal postseason history on 101 ESPN. Next up, you're killing me, Smalls. We are right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> All right, it's time for you're
4: killing me, Smalls. Randy, we knew Antonio Brown was going to get back into the NFL, and there was a lot of speculation about where he might land. A lot of people thought Seattle may be the destination, but we got the news over the weekend that he is headed to Tampa Bay, a reunion with his buddy Tom Brady. People were saying, oh, okay, what happened when he lived with Tom Brady in in Brady's house when he was with New England? They must have really forged a bond there if Tom Brady would vouch for him and want him to come to Tampa Bay. And... A lot of people also wondering, is this something that he can maintain? You know, can he go there and not cause any problems? How much does he still have left in the tank? And Bruce Arians, the Buccaneers coach, said, hey, here's the message for Antonio Brown. It's pretty simple. Be a team player or be gone.
3: That's a pretty good one. I would start by saying for uh, all the young ladies in Tampa that are going to associate with Antonio Brown, watch your back. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was really funny. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Scotty likes it.
4: (laughs) He's covering his face. His face is red (laughs) and he's covering his face.
3: Secondly, I I would say that a guy that really hasn't played in a year and a half and is 32 years old, I wonder about his ability to stay healthy. If he's able to be the player he was, in Pittsburgh. And by the way, did not play well in his second half of his last year with Pittsburgh either. It's been a couple of years since Antonio Brown has been a good player in the NFL. If he can be that guy, then he's a major weapon for them. There are no teams in the NFL that have a group that in, with, of the quality of Evans, Godwin, and Brown. And that doesn't even include Scotty Miller, who's Brady's new pet. He's is Julian Edelman or Wes Welker <laughs> or Troy Brown guy. So, Man, adding A.B. to that group of receivers, plus Gronkowski and Cameron Brate, there's nobody in the league that has weapons like that.
4: And you know Tom Brady's ultimate goal is to win. but for And especially at this stage of his career, I'm sure he's not as concerned about stuff like this. But for a guy who's had very few missteps in his career and who's very concerned about image and all this mm-hmm. stuff, what a surprising partnership and or some sort of pseudo-friendship that he's developed with Antonio
3: Brown. Sometimes in the pursuit of winning, people, normally it's coaches and general managers, make a deal with the devil. And normally you lose those deals. I'll be really interested to see how this works out. I remember when Marty Schottenheimer was down at the end of his run in Kansas City, and he went out and just got a bunch of 'er ne'er-do-wells and... It was a disaster, and that's what wound up actually getting Marty fired there. Andre Risen was like the leader of the pack, and it was a, a real problem. They had a big defensive lineman from the Raiders. I, I know somebody will text, but they it was just a really bad group of people, and it really cost them. And you hope that Antonio Brown doesn't cost Tampa Bay and Brady one more opportunity.
4: But if you're Tom Brady, you're probably looking at this as, hey, I need to win a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And this could be a this is a short term thing I'm going to have to deal with. This is a guy that lived in my house. He hopefully respects me and understands that this is an opportunity for him, too. And if it doesn't work out, it's it's a small sample size of games that I'm going to have to deal with it.
3: And I, I have to believe that Brady understands that this stage of his career, everything is short term.
4: That's right. <laughs> That's right. You're killing me, smalls. So, Randy, in this segment last week, we mentioned that ratings were down in a terrible way for Major League Baseball in the World Series. Game one actually drew the smallest audience ever. And Saturday night's game, one of the best finishes we've seen in a World Series game. So exciting and just a great game altogether. Again low ratings. SNL actually beat out Ooh, World Series Game 4. In comparison, SNL uh, drew a 5 and the World Series drew a 4.7. I, w-
3: I mentioned this to you during our break. I wonder where sports is headed. And there, at that time of night, the the game was running late, so there wasn't any competition from college football. You would have felt that maybe the people that were watching Michigan and Minnesota might have flipped over to watch sports, but they didn't. That audience went elsewhere. And overall, the there's a great piece about this in The Athletic. Overall, sports viewership is actually up a little bit, but it's so fragmented now because we've had this oversaturation with everybody playing at once. Hockey, baseball, basketball, football, WNBA. There was that night where all six leagues played uh, on the same night. But that doesn't explain to us what the issue is with baseball right now that they're at their lowest ever and i do think that the style of play that we talked about earlier in this show by the way if you want to hear the show and hear that segment uh, earlier you can just find it on the 101 espn app later with our uh with our podcast But I think the style of play and the compelling nature of play of baseball in general is hurting it. People didn't go because they thought they were going to get one thing and something else completely different happened.
4: I also think we're in the countdown phase towards one of the most discussed elections Mm -hmm. in a long time. And if you look at what's beating baseball, at least on Saturday, it's Saturday Night Live. And what do they do on Saturday Night Live? Yeah, politics. Political satire. So maybe that is drawing more people to watch other things because of what's happening in our country right now. People are tuning into other things as we gear up to the election. But either way, if you're baseball, these are conversations you should be having because it's concerning.
3: And you have to note that even though the viewership is way down, In the postseason, they've been number one a lot by a pretty dominant margin, like 45% more viewers than the next show. So even though their overall numbers are down, things are so fragmented now. There's so many things to do. What you want to be is number one. Mm -hmm. And the number of viewers doesn't matter as much as being number one. One other note, by the way, you mentioned politics. Of the top 20 rated television shows since the start of the NFL season, two of them are debates a presidential debate and a vice presidential debate. The other 18 are NFL games.
5: Oof.
4: Wow.
3: Yeah. So the NFL's doing fine with TV.
4: Yes, they are. You're killing me, Small. Randy, I found this very interesting poll, and I wanted to run it by you. What do you think the most hated state in America is? So this this co- company, Best Life Online, they they crowdsourced mm-hmm. a bunch of different factors here to just des- to determine the most hated state in America. They looked at people leaving each state, the population increase or decrease. Are people coming in or are they leaving? They analyzed a Gallup poll that citizens voted on Um where they express how much pride they have in their home states. And they looked at uh, this amateur researcher, Matt Shirley. He has 320,000 Instagram followers and he crowdsourced them to see which state they hate the most. So they factored in all of these things and they determined the most hated state in America. So if you had your guess, what do you think it would be?
3: The first state I thought of it, I think it's probably just the the biggest. I'm, I'm going to go California. In terms of t- people leaving?
4: California came in at number three. Illinois? Illinois came in, wait for it, I'm almost there, came in at number 12.
3: Really? Because a lot of people are leaving, specifically the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. I cold, think it's got to be big, and I think it's got to be one that people... Do you want a hint? Yeah. East Coast. New York? Close. Jersey,
4: Jersey, the most hated state in America, oh. coming in at number one is New Jersey.
3: I, I think it's just because it's been picked on for such a long time. Bridge I and mean, tunnel. they they pick on Jersey in Hamilton, right?
4: <laughs> Definitely.
3: So uh, since the outset of our union, people have been picking on Ham uh, on Jersey, and they that's another thing they joke about on Saturday Night Live. So uh, I guess we shouldn't be surprised, but top of mind. Jersey just doesn't come top. I-, I would have to think about it before I would pick Jersey.
4: Same. And I have family in Jersey. Jersey is a great place. The state that came in at number two, that surprised me that it wasn't number one. And that, Randy, is the great state of Texas.
3: Yeah, there is a level of arrogance in Texas that I don't think people generally appreciate but I don't think people are leaving there. I think that's probably the thing. There's, they're still drawing a lot of people, especially to Houston and Dallas and Austin and San Antonio, too. A lot of people are moving to Texas still, whereas people are leaving California in droves, whether it's to go to Seattle or Portland or to, to get out of there because of the wildfires and the, the taxes. I, I am kind of surprised it's way down at number three. I'm I'm surprised that Jersey would be more hated than California.
4: Do you want to know where Missouri landed? Yes, I do. Number seventeen.
3: I think that people just don't care enough about Missouri. I agree. Which is not a bad thing.
4: So they have on here the state that hates it the most. Uh-huh. Clearly, it's Kansas.
3: That hates us the most. That hates Missouri. I get the that. Most. Yeah, Kansas yeah, City, you. Kansas. Oh yeah, Ku. Yeah. So that makes sense.
4: Number four on this list: uh-huh. Oklahoma.
3: See, that's another one that I would have to think deeply about.
4: I would never have guessed that.
3: I'm surprised that New York isn't up there because of the disdain people have for New York City.
4: I'm looking to where New York is.
3: I'm trying to find like number it. 11. Number okay. 11. I, I, I like New York.
4: Coming in at number five, Florida.
3: Well, Florida man. Yeah.
4: Surprised that's not in the top three.
3: I am too. <laughs> yeah.
4: You're killing me, small. Okay, finally, Randy, story out of Michigan. A guy in Michigan won $2 million accidentally. He purchased one Mega Millions lottery ticket He was doing this online
3: I thought he had a bet on the (laughs) Falcons (laughs) game
4: No he didn't but yeah So he was logging in online He realized he forgot to save his numbers as favorites So he could play them again in the future Family birthdays So he logged back into the Michigan lottery app And instead of saving the numbers He accidentally bought a second ticket With the same numbers And he won not one million dollars But two million dollars Good for
3: him That's pretty awesome
4: and I wanted to tell you, Randy, in my latest podcast, I got an astrology reading yes. done and the I know. the astrologist said that I am going to win the lottery next spring. I know. He said it could be literal or figurative, but I think that we should get an office pool going.
3: Okay. I, I, I'm totally in on that, on the office pool, because I don't want to be one of those people that just has to wait for that mysterious envelope that's going to show up six years down the road. <laughs>
4: Come on, that's a great idea, don't you think?
3: Yeah, you'd share it.
4: Okay, so here's what, we were talking about this on the podcast and a lot of people after they win the lottery, their lives get significantly worse because people want money from them and it just brings them a lot of unhappiness um, for many different reasons. So my co-host Steve Cerruti and I were talking about, okay, if you hit the lottery, what are you going to do? Because everyone that you've ever known is going to come to you wanting a cut. And I said, okay, here's an idea that I have. I would have a list of people that are on the payout list, okay? You've been here. Throughout my life, this is somebody I want to help. You're going to get a million dollars, and every person on the list is going to get a million bucks, but they don't know when they're going to get it. So I, I said, people are going to come to me. Hey, I want to buy a new car. You're on the list, but you don't know when you're going to get the money. And I'm going to assign a random date to each person. Give it to a financial advisor. And maybe one year in 2027, Randy, you're going to get a check in the mail for a million dollars. And it's just going to be a big surprise to you. But that's going to be and everything else is going to go to charity. But I'm just going to say, hey, obviously, I'm going to buy my family a house, do do all that. But then I'm going to say, hey, it's all gone and you're going to get it. You just don't know when.
3: I like my chances better of joining the group. <laughs> and uh, Ranj has the idea. He says, just hire a no guy.
4: Oh, that's the play. Hire
3: somebody just to say no for you.
4: But even if the no guy, if somebody comes to the no guy and says, mm-hmm. "Hey, I need money," and they say no, that person could still get mad at you for employing the no guy. At least my excuse is, it's coming. Good, isn't it? It's coming. Yeah, you just don't know.
3: I like the idea. I think it's creative and fun.
4: So Rudy said, "You know, that's kind of mean because you're holding it over people's heads." And I said, "No, it's the element of surprise."
3: Right. It's great. Wouldn't it be great to get it yeah. that day? Is going to be unforgettable.
4: On a Tuesday, you're like, oh, another catalog. My power bill." Is this weird at full of? Oh, it's a million dollar check.
3: Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Thank you, Michelle. You're welcome, Randy. Next up, we're going to head back to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Our friend Scott Miller of Leacher Report will join us to talk World Series on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman
2: podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs>
3: Randy and Michelle with you, and we head to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Friend is Scott Miller of Bleacher Report. You can follow Scott on Twitter at ScottMillerBBL. He joins us to talk some World Series. Good morning, sir. How you doing? Hey, Randy. Hey,
7: Michelle. Good. How
3: are you? Doing well. Uh, Michelle and I are, are both entranced by at least the last couple of games of this World Series. The style of play, the energy, has really been great.
7: Yeah, it has been. Um, you know, it's, you wondered coming into this, well, into the whole postseason, really, how the games would look and how the energy would be without fans. And obviously, there are fans here, but just about twenty-five percent capacity. But you know the, um, you know the the players. I mean, you, you know, you can tell. I mean, you know, to get to this level of of uh any profession but to get to this level this elite level in 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 baseball um you know you've got to be self-driven i mean obviously it takes talent but i mean there's something inside these guys that uh you know the pride the the you know every pro athlete has to have some ego you you know you want to look good and you, you you can tell the uh you know they're getting after it pretty well, and you know even last night, you know Tampa Bay comes at things a little bit unconventionally. Manuel Margot breaks for home, tries the first straight steal of home since uh, Lonnie Smith in Game One of the 1982 Cardinals Brewers World Series. That was something out of the blue last <laughs> night, and uh, but it's it's been it's been pretty good.
4: Scott, one of the storylines heading into this World Series is, of course, Clayton Kershaw and what he would be able to do as far as the narrative or the legacy that surrounds him in the postseason. And after his Game 5 performance last night, how much do you think he's kind of tipped the scales as far as that discussion goes?
7: You know, I think he has. It's kind of gone back and forth with him, you know, over the years, going back to, you know, when he first broke in in 2008. Um, You know, back early in his career, there were a couple times they leaned on him, I think, a little too heavy because the bullpen wasn't good. So they asked Kershaw to go deeper into the game than he probably should have. And that's, I think, what happened in 2014 when, uh, you know, the Matt Adams home run uh, knocked the Dodgers out of it. Um, You know, there's also been times – you know, aside from asking him to go too long, where, you know, he's just giving it up, you know, but there's also been times he's looked really good. And, you know, the numbers overall in the postseason haven't been great for Kershaw, but part of that's also because he's had so many postseason opportunities. And, you know, this year he's, he's pitched really well. He's come back um, in, in, you know, this, the 60 game season, he, he, he had a better year this year than he has in the the past couple You know, it looks like he's figured things out as aging pitchers do sometimes. uh, At least the great ones do. He's figured some things out to, uh, you know, kind of belie his age. And in the postseason, he's he's pitched really well. And you know, it's hard to. I mean, I'll never forget standing in the Dodgers clubhouse last year (laughs) after the division series when the Washington Nationals shocked him. And the Dodgers, they thought last year they were built to win and to get bounced in the first round. And Kershaw came in in relief, and he gave up back-to-back homers and gave up three homers total. And that was just like a train wreck in the Dodgers clubhouse. I mean, Kershaw came out. His eyes were red. You could tell he'd been in tears. And he basically threw up his arms last, last year after that loss and said, look, I get it. Everything everybody's been saying about me in the postseason is true, Um, you know, and it was just such a torturous sight. And to see him come back and and especially last night have the good game and move the Dodgers to within one win of the World Series, it's, uh, you know, I I think this guy's a Hall of Famer, and he's had some rough October moments, but I think overall, you know, nobody can argue with his legacy.
3: Scott, Rosarena almost had one off of him last night, and Randy seems to barrel up a lot of balls. What are your impressions of him? Is he a a, a fluke, or is this real? Are we going to see this for a while?
7: (laughs) You know, it's been an unbelievable October for Randy Rosarena, and, you know, I'm not going to say it's a fluke. But I am going to say I want to see it over a 162-game season. Um, You know, uh, I mean, it looks like he's certainly athletic, got a great swing, gets after it pretty well. But, um, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't mean to be overly harsh, but you guys know how baseball is. I mean, you know, it's, it's a game of you've got to do it over an extended period of time. And that's why, you know, even people that win Rookies of the Year, a Rookie of the Year award, um, you know the game's also filled with a lot of Joe Sharbonos mm-hmm. uh, you know the old Cleveland Indians guy won the rookie of the year award then never could do much again and that's why when you win a rookie of the year award that, then the trick is okay you know can they do it for can a guy do it for a second year in a row and and then can he do it for a third year in a row and you know you you need to prove yourself over time and I'm not taking anything away from what Randy Razzarina's done this postseason. I mean, you know, he's been phenomenal. I I, I will say, um, you know, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, I know he has a postseason record now for hits. You know, I don't mean to sound like, a, you know, one of those grumpy old dudes, but, <laughs> you know, let's remember this is expanded playoffs this year and, and, and it's not, you know, I mean, since 95, we've had expanded playoffs, but this year there's even, you know, three more games Um, so, you know, he's had a lot more chances this year, but I mean, credit to him for stepping up and, 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 you know, doing his thing. He's had a, you know, especially going back a couple of rounds, all those home runs. I mean, it's just been incredible what he's done and, um, you know, trick will be come next April 1st or whenever. Hopefully we get a full 162 game season in next year. The trick will be okay. You know, you were unbelievable in October of 2020 you know, now let's see if you can establish yourself as a major leaguer.
4: Scott, the finish, really the entire game of game four, but especially the finish was a wild, wild ride. Where does that game rank for you as far as most fun or entertaining World Series games that you've seen?
7: You know, it's 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 up there. It's in the top three or four. I mean, it's, it's right there with, uh, you know, of course, everybody talks about it. I, I was in the stands or in the press box that night, the David freeze game, you know, the, the the Cardinals Rangers game, that's still number one for me. That was 2010, right? 11, 2010, 11, 2011. Yeah. That game, I think for me was that's still number one. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that, the, the two errors, you know, I mean, that's never happened in a world series game before having, you know, a walk-off in play in which there were two errors committed on that play. I mean, it it was unbelievable. It certainly put some juice in this World Series because I think it's been a a well-played World Series overall, but, you know, Tampa Bay's offense, they just, too many strikeouts, and they just don't hit. And you've had the feeling the whole... You've had the feeling the whole time that this has been the Dodgers World Series and Tampa Bay has to do everything possible uh to get a win or to position themselves for a win. Um, you know and, and, and so I thought, you know, games one, two, and three, you know, it's kind of a whole hum World Series. I mean, you know, certainly interesting, certainly historic in the middle of a pandemic with just eleven thousand people in the stands. But, um, you know, game four, that, that the way that ended, I thought, really put some juice into this thing. Um, you know, it would have really made it interesting, I think, if coming off of game four, if Tampa Bay would have parlayed that into a win last night and put the Dodgers on the ropes. Um, but, you know, I, I think part of the reason I mentioned the David Freeze game, I mean, that, that – uh, yeah, I mean, that World Series, that was such a back-and-forth emotional thing. And I think also individual games have to fit into the context of the entire World Series. And if the Dodgers win on on Tuesdays, if the Dodgers win in six games, then the importance of, of the way Game 4 ended will be reduced some. You know, I mean, it, it, the importance of Game 4 would really skyrocket if Tampa Bay came back to win this whole World Series. And it also would have its place, I think, in World Series lore if if this went to a seventh game and the Dodgers ended up eking it out in seven. But if they win it in six, I don't think anybody that watched saw the ending of game four will ever forget it. It's still going to be one of the most memorable World Series games ever. But its its importance, I think, will be reduced if, if the Dodgers win it in six. It'll become more, I don't want to say blip on the screen, because it was more than that, you know, based on what we watched. But, you know, if it just goes six games and the Dodgers win, like I said, I think the importance will be a little bit reduced.
3: Scott Miller, we always like hearing from you. Thanks so much. Have fun tomorrow with game six, and we'll keep reading your great work at Bleacher Report. I appreciate it.
7: Uh, Nice talking with you guys, as always. Have a a good Monday. It's uh, 50 degrees and gray and rainy here, and I'm glad there's a roof in Texas (laughs) because tomorrow it's supposed to be worse. It's supposed to be rainy and a high of 44, so they'll need that roof tomorrow night.
3: Welcome to our St. Louis world. and uh, For a San Diego guy, this has to be killing you, right? (laughs)
7: you know i like it for a change you know the weather is so good where i live that uh you know this time of year i kind of
3: like a little bit of october chill i love it scott thanks take care see you later that is scott miller from bleacher report on 101 espn yeah having it be 72 and sunny every day that gets boring
4: yeah it must be nice to just live in perfect weather all the time and crave an October chill
3: <laughs> right coming up we're going to cross things over with Dan McLaughlin scoops with Danny Mac coming up at the top of the hour here on 101 ESPN we're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on
2: 101 ESPN
3: scoops with Danny Mac coming up at the top of the hour here on 101 ESPN always good to see Daniel McLaughlin on a Monday hey what's going on What we- a what a weekend of baseball that was fun it really was and it is different when you see a game where it's not 4-3 and every single run is a result a of run. a home run. Yeah. That was great. Uh Saturday's game was one of the
8: best I've seen in a man, a long time and just how it finished, the excitement. Uh I'm just really I was just thankful that baseball has pulled this off through mm-hmm. covid and making this fun. It's been a great uh, October. The the entire postseason has been fun, but that that game
3: on Saturday was just incredible. Just incredible. And uh, I wonder, and we talked about this earlier in the show, if a game like that, and and a game like last night too, and I know because we've talked about the statistics for Tampa Bay and the the way they score runs, it's generally through the home run, but I wonder if if in a copycat sport, every sport is copycat, if some management person might say, you know what, I'm going to try to have people that can... In addition to hit home runs, manufacture runs too. Well, they tried last night by stealing home. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> I mean, it was Wasn't
8: close. Crazy? It was close. It was great. I, I thought I don't I don't blame uh, Margot for doing that. It he, was a great move. You know, it, it, if it worked, you sitting there going, "Gosh, what a great move!" Because Kershaw has that unique odd delivery. They had the shift on. He can get the huge lead down third base. Um, regardless, they had to score in that inning. How they mm-hmm. did it, you know, whether he stole a base or however they wound up getting that run home, they had to score. And when they didn't do it, you kind of felt like it was going back the Dodgers' way. Um, but man, I, it was just an exciting play. I thought he was out. What would you guys think? He was, yeah. Yeah, I thought he was out. I've had people, I was going back and forth a friend's mind saying, oh, he was, safe, he was safe. No, I thought he was out. I thought he was out. I thought the key to the game that no one will talk about was Mookie Betts first at bat, and the Dodgers coming out and scoring Mm -hmm. Um, because the momentum, Mm -hmm. without a doubt, after that game on Saturday was with Tampa Bay and with Betts getting on base and kind of making things happen, and if you look at the numbers in this series, if he doesn't get on, the Dodgers do not win, and when he gets on, they win. He's just He's been just the difference maker, one of them, in this series.
4: Another one was Clayton Kershaw, Dan, and Randy and I were talking about his – Great, not only World Series performances, but just general postseason. He's been great this entire postseason. And he's done enough to shift the narrative that surrounds him. But do you think it all goes away if they end up losing the series?
8: I I will be. um, I don't think it all goes away, Michelle, because he's, you know, I was listening to your interview with um, Scott Miller. And I reflected on then the time... That he blew up against St. Louis twice against Matt Carpenter, the home run that Adams hit, and then there was just the ugly game that he had last year against Washington that eliminated them. And then he came out and he said, "You, you guys are right. Maybe mm-hmm. I just I'm not a postseason guy." I, I do think it changes the narrative a little bit if he if they win, but they got to win. If they don't win, then it doesn't change it. And I do think. As you much have as to win, right? right, even no though doubt, that's no not doubt.
4: fair to him because he's exactly. done everything that he can yep. do. He's, he's
8: been great in this series and in
3: this postseason. He, what is he at? Four wins, I think, now right. in the postseason. But if he wants, it, not if he wants, but something that would dramatically change the narrative and turn him into a postseason hero is if he does what Randy Johnson did in 01 or what Bumgarner did out, in '14. Yeah. In if he comes back in relief and ends the game that wins the World Series for them, that that will change things.
8: That would do it. Yeah, I agree. Or comes in in a key spot in Game 7 when you're just Mm -hmm. all hands on deck. I think this is going 7, by the way. Most people think it's over in 6. What do you guys think?
4: I I picked Dodgers in 7.
8: Okay. And I said Dodgers in 6, but I'm hoping it goes 7. I think... um, just because it's a bullpen start for the Dodgers and I like Snell he's been so good so I'm gonna say that it goes seven maybe it's my heart speaking that way and not thinking sense uh, with my my you know right uh, mind here but I'm uh, I'm thinking it's gonna go seven and then you could have Kershaw come out and you know it's a three batter minimum so it's not just mm-hmm. coming into face one lefty so he's going to have to have a, an inning under his belt potentially could be a key.
3: And could this, it could be a game tomorrow with Gonsolin <laughs> starting where if Snell gets a hold of a lead, that that's going to be the biggest part of the game. If you're, yeah. if you're the Rays tomorrow, you need to get the first lead.
8: And kind of how it uh, unfolded the last time in Game 2 when they went with the bullpen mm-hmm. start and it didn't work. And they jumped out to that lead and Snell shut them down and game was over. The Tampa Bay bullpen is just awesome. I mean, that's Anderson true. has had his issues... Um, in this postseason. But outside, I mean, Fairbanks, these power arms, they come at you. Mm-hmm.
3: Man, tough. Yeah. And tough. Boy, all kinds of St. Louis connections, right? Yeah. With, yeah. Uh, with uh, our friend, Josh, what we had him on last week. Fleming. Fleming, yeah. Josh Fleming. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he's great. Fairbanks. Ryan Sheriff is back bigs.
8: Remember Ryan Sheriff uh, got the rental car from... Uh, from Wayno, Wayno during oh, spring yeah. training. That's yeah. right. That was yeah. a great story. And then he had... Uh, yeah, I think he had Tommy John, and on I his follow, own. Yeah, I follow him on. Um, well, he was on a caravan, so when we're on, when we do the caravans, it just seems like you develop these different relationships with guys because you spend ultimately, you know, eight hours a day in a bus mm-hmm. with guys. So you, <laughs> that's a
4: way to get to know somebody. <laughs> yeah,
8: you, 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 you kind of have a different relationship with them. So I follow him on. Uh, social media and was watching him on these comebacks and, and uh, to see him get to the World Series is really cool. Really yeah, cool. And, and, and He's it, a hard thrower, by the way, from the left side.
3: Yeah, and they saw a lot in him. They gave him yeah. a three-year contract. It's unbelievable. By the way, did you guys see, and this is something that Scott Miller tweeted, that after the ga- the game-winning hit on Saturday, Brett Phillips <laughs> got over 500 texts and returned every single one of them, the including really? one from Adam Wainwright. Yeah, Did he really? Yeah. What a great note. 500? But then he
4: returned them all. All of them. I, I would wait until after the series was over or something. That just yeah. seems like an ev- a Mount Everest of text I don't want to climb in and, that moment. And
3: he also, I kind of thought he was hyperventilating. He had to go yeah. get an RV. His resting heart rate was 140. Come on. Yeah, so he had to go get IVs after the game. Well,
8: Have you ever he, seen him laugh, by the way? Yes. Well, he, yeah. he, maybe that's why he had that. So for people that don't know, MLB Network had him on, and he does this laugh where he basically hyperventilates yeah. then, yeah. too. He can't catch his breath. It's the oddest thing I've ever seen in my life.
4: Well, when he was doing the post game, you could tell that he could even really, He was trying to process it, mm-hmm. and he was like, I'm having a hard time articulating yeah. what I want to say. But, yeah, if you're him in that moment, how, how can you really grasp the magnitude of what just yeah. happened? Awesome. It was awesome.
8: It was great. That's what makes baseball great, to see those kind of guys have those kind of moments. really is. What's happening today on Scoops? Uh, go down to Texas, and we'll visit with Derek Gould. I love and it. Uh, so Derek will come on. And uh, by the way, we're trying to get Adam right on tomorrow. Great. So uh, working on that this week and a bunch of other guys too. All right.
3: Yeah. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks. Have a great show. That is the great it. Dan McLaughlin joining us here. As he gets ready for scoops with Danny Max, Scott Manziar, our producer, engineer. As always, great work. Thank you. Thanks, Randy. And Michelle, thank you.
4: Thanks, Randy. See you tomorrow.
3: And we appreciate you tuning in, texting in, being a part of the show for all of us. Until tomorrow morning at 7, have a great day, St. Louis. That was the Carriker and
2: Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.
1: Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard.